It's not game night. It's game day, Jimmy. Right? Woo! It's like the NCAA tournament. 5 o'clock tip, 4.30 pregame on a Thursday. Winter plays again on Saturday. Let's go, right? This is a very first world problem of me, but it, do you have any idea how difficult it is trying to plan with friends and or family members that work normal jobs? Hey, by the way, this game's at 5. Where are we going for this thing? Where do you, where do you want to go? No, I'm just watching at my house? Okay, sounds good. Like, Here's logistically, the, you know it's what? just tough. Here's what I... You, this is what we should do. Okay. So last night I had dinner at what do you what are you doing for the game, Jimmy? It's it's still to be determined. I don't oh, know. You know yet. what? Now that I think about it, I think I have an appointment at four o'clock. All right. But last night I had dinner at Union Jack. Nice. Now Union Jack in Broderpool, the, the the beauty for me, the Pacers, and probably like a lot of where my Pacer fanaticism came from was the real breakthrough Pacers, like the NBA when they really broke through. The Smiths, Davis Brothers, Reggie Miller, Knicks era Pacers was when I was 22, 23, 24 years old. So my buddies and I, it was the first you know era where we could go to sports bars and that kind of thing. Sure. And Union Jack and Broderpool was where I watched so many of those Pacer games. And they've moved right across the street now, and the construction and Broderpool and everything else is is has really kind of hurt them. So last night we went to dinner just to support it and whatever else because it's kind of an Indianapolis institution. And the guy told me, he goes, yeah, we're trying to get more of like a Pacers bar type feel. They do all the soccer stuff, right? I mean, they they open at like 4 in the morning to show soccer games and that kind of thing. Matches, I realize. Um, but at any rate, like that would be awesome to go. And then JMV's on remote today too. Where is JMV today? He is at Okay, so there you go. There's the viewing party. AJ's Bar and Grill for JMV because JMV is going to be done at 4.30 for the pregame, and then the game comes on, so you could just stick around, listen to him, and then stick around and watch the game, right? Yeah, and I will say as well, there's a number of different spots that I won't specifically name because I don't want to undercut a JMV remote, but the Pacers have put together a list of different watch parties depending on what city you or what portion of central indiana you're in so it, like is, it just a north is cool side though bar. it feels yeah. like the ncaa tournament doesn't it, it? it does it does because of the single elimination aspect of it because of the neutral site because of the weird times it all lines up for i need to check the calendar and figure out what month we're in yeah i agree so jmv at you said aj's right eddie okay um and he's going to be on until 4 30 when the pregame takes over but tonight it is the or this afternoon i guess pacers and bucks Semi-final of the in-season tournament. And then, of course, the winner playing the winner of the Lakers and Pelicans. And Jimmy's all fired up. He's got his Pacers shirt on and everything, right? I'm ready to go. I'm excited. That's like your hybrid Pacers-Yankees shirt. It is, correct. That's that partially why I wore it today. Uh, some news that no one cares about happened with the Yanks last night. And instead of wearing my Tyree City jersey, I wore my Pacers pinstripe shirt today. You are right that nobody cares about that news about Juan Soto. But the one thing that is interesting is, how old is Juan Soto? 25. What number team is this for him? This is his third third team in, what, three years, two and years? And he, he is a free agent win. Next year. Like, Major League Baseball has an issue, quite frankly. Major League Baseball, if people want to know, there are two reasons why when a player the caliber of Juan Soto goes to the most, to the preeminent sports franchise in the United States... 
the reason why a radio host in Indianapolis would say nobody cares about it, and I know you're being half flippant, half to serious. To be clear, I, I really care about no, it, I but know. I know nobody here cares about it. Correct. Right? No one cares. Correct. Whoa, and whoa, the reason, whoa. okay, none of our, no, not our majority of listeners care. Correct. And the reason why they don't care is because Major League Baseball sucks at promoting its stars and its players and its teams. Sure. Period. Yeah. Period. Outside of your big like four, right? Dodgers, Yankees, Red Sox, uh, and then e- even then one. Uh, is stop stop somebody on the street how many can name four Yankees stop somebody on the street yeah. how many can name four Atlanta Falcons per- probably the you know what I mean a percentages lot. will tell you that it's going to be more for the NFL team the MLB team in today's America yes I, I just Soto's a great player but it is it's like the the movement and, and I listen I I don't want to sound like that guy because I'm not saying necessarily I understand it. I mean, good for players and whatever else, but the movement of players does make it difficult for the the diehards are going to follow regardless. Sure. But transcendent or passerby or flyby fans are they are not necessarily going to you know what I mean be aware of where guys are playing, and it's like you know the Padres. I mean, the Padres are good. You know, they had. Two or three years ago, it's like, holy cow, they have everybody. Correct. Half the time they're hurt or they're suspended or whatever else. But um, but anyway, Juan Soto, by the way, headed to the New York Yankees in a multiplayer trade with the Padres yesterday. Uh, Colts obviously getting set for the Cincinnati Bengals. That game is going to be on Sunday. Lance McAllister of the big one, WLW, down in Cincinnati will join us as part of our road trip in the 2 o'clock hour to preview that game. Once again, as we have talked about, Jimmy, broken record admittedly, but, you know, Initially, you think to yourself, hey, maybe the Colts got a break here because they are Joe Burrow's out and they're getting a backup quarterback. But you know what? Like the Bengals, obviously, coming off of a big night and a big win. Yes, I know that Trevor Lawrence went down. I know that Christian Kirk's now out for the Jags for the remainder of the year. But nonetheless, the Bengals are on life support, Jimmy, but the reality is that their pulse is a little stronger than I think people thought it was going to be coming into this game. There are two analogies that we've used on this show. One is yours, which I will bend the knee and concede is better than mine. Mine is backup quarterbacks have a best if benched by date on them. Right. Yours is the spare tire. I like the spare tire better, so we use the spare tire. The question is, with Browning in Cincinnati... How long before it bursts? Is it against the Colts? Or is he still able to navigate the ship for a little bit longer? Regrettably for Cincinnati, a little bit longer is the entire rest of the season because Burrow's done for the year. But yeah, you look at what he was able to do Monday night against Jacksonville. It was highlighted by Zach Taylor, their head coach. Only like five incompletions. I know I think he had one pick, but most of those incompletions were not his fault. Tip passes, one was a throwaway. He looked serviceable. That's what you want out of a backup quarterback. The problem is, eventually you find out, oh, he's a backup for a reason. When does that moment happen? And for me, one of the biggest areas that I am monitoring outside of the Colts getting back Grover Stewart, I know we stressed yesterday how important that's going to be for what Joe Mixon has meant to the Bengals, not just over the last couple of years, but during this two, three-game stretch without Joe Burrow. But it's the idea of what is Juju Juju Brents, excuse me, practice report status when practices resume today into tomorrow and do they get him back because it is a all hands on deck game for that receiving core in Cincinnati regardless who the quarterback is I wonder how long 
we can convince JMV to stick around and watch the game today. Because I have a four o'clock appointment, but AJ's Barn Grills up. That's off of Fall Creek, right, Eddie? I can Nin- look. Ninety-seven fifty-five Fall Creek, I think. Assuming that's the location, uh, up kind of like near the Geist area. So if he's if he's done at four thirty, there's no reason that he can't stick around and at least like have some dinner, right? Hang out until the game starts. I would, especially think, with their menu, without knowing what type of objectives are on JMV's list today. I I would think he could stay. I mean, it's AJ's bar and grill, so there's the grill aspect Correct. of it. That's right? That's important, right? Yeah. Have a burger, hang out, watch the game. Absolutely. Yeah. In season tournament on Thursday. Let's ha- go. Hang out long enough till till, till I might arrive. <laughs> That's the key, right? Is, was um, might doing a lot of work in that sentence there? What's that? Was might doing a lot of work in that sentence there? I might arrive. Is that well? It depends on how long my hair appointment takes. Okay. I got to go to four fifty nine. Ah, well, at, they take care of you there. Strangely enough, at three fifty nine is when I'm going to get there. There you go. <laughs> yeah. You know? So it just depends on. Uh, they're usually very brisk though, thirty minutes. But I like to get pampered. I, I mean, understand. I go in there, I get the street. I might do the straight razor shave, the whole deal, right? I they mean, look gotta, out for you there, of course. Why not take advantage so of four, like the a thirty-minute vacation? When Absolutely. I go in there, why would I want to leave, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Cincinnati's got weapons. That's the bottom line. And Juju Brents is a guy, Jimmy. We we talked about this yesterday. Did it's amazing to think. Back in August, when Juju Brents was missing camp time, that we would in December be sitting there talking about, like, not necessarily the total necessity of getting him back, but the desire, right? To get him back. And, you know, the luxury, if you can get him back. And he has shown enough that I think down the stretch, obviously, you'd like to have every player, but he's been a good player for them. And. They want to get him back. Now, we also know this, Jimmy, came out yesterday just after we were on the air. Uh, The Colts now are going to be down once again, like one player out, one player in, right? One step forward, one step back. Grover Stewart, on his way back into the building, had somebody holding the door for him because he was on his way out, right? (laughs) Yes, exactly. An easy way to say it? Yes, he did. So what's going on with the Colts getting like players suspended defensively for performance-enhancing drugs? Yeah, I mean, Al-Qadim Muhammad is now the second Colt this season to get suspended for violating the performance-enhancing drug policy of the NFL. And when I first saw it, even though it's just a member of the practice squad in Al-Qadim Muhammad, it's like, okay, these are two of these now that basically play not directly the same position, but are in the trenches together. What's happening? Are these just he's, two isolated weird He's made a few plays incidents? for them in his time here. Sure, he has. I'm not trying to downplay it. In totality, I just mean in terms of this year, it's not like he was a, an everyday player like Grover Stewart was, right? Doesn't justify what appears to be either just two weird coincidences or just at least eyebrows raised now when two people that are in similar position rooms get suspended for the same thing in the same year. Very weird. The one thing I'll say, and I, look, you're a professional athlete. And we went over this when Grover Stewart got popped. We went over it when Robert Mathis got popped, right? I get it. It's probably unfair to understand or pretend that we would be able to adhere diligently to every single thing in terms of the list of substances. Because I think people think... When they hear performance-enhancing drugs, everybody automatically thinks that that player is Ivan Drago and that that player is like on a treadmill with like 
Russian scientists around them plugging them in with nine different needles and 25 <laughs> different chemicals and that they are completely like artificially enhanced. And the reality is that in the National Football League, they have a list, a, a fairly lengthy list of different supplements, be it I don't know that you would say vitamins, but rather probably synthetic vitamins and different like muscle growth, hormonal type things, a ton, a long list. And it says you cannot take any of these items. Now, that sounds both complex and at the same time, fairly simple. But because what do you, what do you really expect a guy to do? He runs into village pantry on his way home and buys himself an energy drink because he's tired and doesn't realize it's got like is he supposed to look at the nine different ingredients on it that each have the letters x and z in them like seven times you know like, what is this it'd be a difficult thing to monitor except for when you are making millions of dollars and you have within the facility like reminders and lists that tell you Hey, stay away from these protein shakes. Stay away from this brand at GNC. Stay away from this food item that could that could hurt you. And for the most part, a large percentage of their nutritional and supplemental stuff comes from inside the building, which would be monitored. So it's like, okay, you're going to go on your own. You're taking a risk here. And I think that's probably what happens. I feel I, I'm like- going to give benefit of the doubt, Jimmy, to say these guys aren't sitting around shooting up, right. but they are ingesting something that you would like to think because of the money that is involved and the opportunity that's there that they were naive to the fact that they were taking it in, except for the fact that that naivety comes with the fact that they should have been a little bit more aware, if that makes sense. Yeah, average annual salary, well, I guess just a one-year deal, right? About $500 base salary, yearly cash, about 650000 This for Al-Qadim Muhammad, and then you include what the, the Bears had had him for, so... Estimated by SpotRack that he would make about 1.2 this year. And I highlight that because I know not all money in the NFL is created equal. That said, and I know there's going to be different finances involved in this, but if I was a professional athlete, which obviously I'm not, but if we can dream, I would hire a trainer or a nutritionist if I'm doing stuff on my own to make sure, hey, Correct. you you are an expert in this. You have a, a master's degree in in, in 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 nutrition and dietetics. Just tell me what this has in it, and is it okay based on this long terms and agreements like cell phone plan list that I'm sure the NFL hands right. out with well, substances that cannot be in your body. And the team normally would have that guy anyway, right? right? Like a right. lot of times they have like, hey, if you you know you were at whatever store and there was a supplement there if you have question about it bring it here and we can let you know we have a list you can compare it to or we have somebody i would assume that the colts absolutely would have somebody on staff that that's their job sure. right it's just to monitor that stuff here I'm, I'm drinking a soft drink right here let's see see i can't the 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 print on the can is like blurred to the point where i can't even tell what these ingredients are let alone i wouldn't even know what they are right which is probably not a good thing but I know this, on a smaller scale, I'm on medications that I know prohibit me from taking certain things. And let me tell you, Jimmy, it didn't take long for me to figure out what those things are by asking, because when you're having to take it every day and there are certain things on the line for you, a la your health, you know, you know what you can and can't take. And so 
for the most part, you would think for the there's a reason why a franchise of 53 plus plus players has had fewer than five guys in eight years or whatever get popped because I do think that that the the leaflets are there for you to browse through to make sure it doesn't happen to you. So does it, it does it make these guys bad characters or really bad guys? No. Does it make them a little bit naive? Yeah, probably because there's a reason that so few players get popped, right? Ignorance you can feel somewhat bad for. Does it make you a bad person? It, true intention is where we get into waters of, okay, what are you really doing to the sport here? You're cheating a lot of people in this regard. I don't think that's necessarily the case, and it is more limited information than al Muhammad, but I don't think that Grover Stewart, and I would throw benefit of the doubt to al Muhammad as well, intentionally tried to cheat the game in these scenarios. Have we looked to see how much tickets are for the Pacer game tonight? Have they gone up or down? Like, really? are they selling? You glanced yesterday but didn't share where you were, and the site that I usually use didn't have them listed. So I've not checked. I will check. Okay. I can look right now, but... I mean, any of us could look. I just didn't know if anybody... I'm curious if they've gone up, like, because it is an interesting dynamic that you pointed out yesterday, and I know somebody's like, 72 hours is plenty of time to get out to Vegas. Uh, okay. okay. I mean... So you I, can get around the $20 range for the 200 upper bowl right now. Okay, so that's way down from yesterday. I mean, 20? yesterday, those were like 300 remember? No, 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 no. no, no. no. That was bowl, $11, upper, you said. The 200 level. The 200 yeah. level's the middle range, right? No, that's 100 Not for Not for T-Mobile Arena. Okay. I think for T-Mobile Arena, it's more scaled to where 200 is. So how much is it for balcony. the middle level? Uh, $32. For the middle level. So I've seen some that are 30 to 35, okay. some that's that are... for the middle level, right? Yes. That's the some, one that was 300 yesterday. Correct. That. And some that are uh, 100 plus. But, but again, they have gone down significantly from yesterday. Correct. I wonder how many people living... like. Do you remember when the NCAA tournament was entirely held here? Yes. Now, kind of a, obviously a much different scenario because only so many people could go to games, right? But there were people that went. I, I, I went to one. I saw Villanova play North Texas just because it's like, hey, it's here. Why not? Let's go, right? Um, the NCAA tournament in totality, when, when the NCAA tournament at full throttle, the first round games are here. Have you ever gone and bought tickets at for the NCAA tournament opening rounds or the regional rounds when it's like Illinois and you know Murray State? Sure. Just because it's there, right? Something to do. So how many people in Las Vegas are like, you know what, let's go? The, the, the challenge with that is, of course, there are a billion things to do in Las Vegas, right? Correct. It's different than if they were doing the same thing in... A no, what would be a non-NBA city that that is still a cool place, but people like would be like, yeah, let's let's like I'm in, let's go, you know? I mean, I was going to say Orlando, but that's a bad example because Orlando has a team, right? Yeah. If it was in San and well, San Antonio has a team in Disney World, you know. But but you get what I'm saying, right? Yeah. What about Nashville? Nashville, that's a good one. Yeah, if you put it in Nashville, Nashville has a lot going on, also, but not as much as Vegas, right? right? So would people be willing to go? You know, I'm curious to see. I think the Lakers will draw yeah. for the obvious reason. And you pointed out yesterday the fair point that Giannis is a big star, but he's certainly not the big star on the Steph Curry, LeBron James, Kevin Durant level attraction. 
Pro- probably not. I mean, I if he's close, right? He's an MVP winner. He's an NBA Finals MVP. He's won a championship. But, Jimmy, when you go to a Pacer game, sure. Kevin Bone and I used to call it, Kevin actually came up with this. It's perfect. The Carmel Pups game. Okay. I, I will tell you this. You mentioned it yesterday. Steph Curry jerseys in the front row. Well, okay. Shannon has Pacer season tickets. I do not. Shannon has them, okay? But she's very generous with them. And she, you know, tries to help people to go to games and gets tickets, whatever else. The the most like literally, I I know months in advance when Golden State's coming into town. Because every person that I grew up with who has kids under the age of twelve asks if there are tickets to the Golden State game. The same holds true for the Lakers or whoever LeBron is playing for. And the same holds true for um a little bit the Celtics, quite frankly. I think there are fans of Giannis, but I don't know that he has the the superstardom of like kids grow up worshiping him level, partially because kids see Steph Curry and they think and that gives them hope. Quite frankly, because a little kid that sees Steph Curry plays like he's the littlest guy on the floor, but he can shoot from anywhere, sure. and that's why I like him. And kids that see LeBron, you know, they see him on every commercial, they see him everywhere. Any you, you could, if you're a diehard fan of the National Football League, you see LeBron twenty times a week just on commercials alone. Right. Giannis is there's a reason they call him the Greek Freak. So I think people I are mesmerized by him, but I don't know that he has like the breakthrough level like connectability i think everybody likes him yeah. for sure but i don't know that anybody says he's their favorite player I, I i would i would concede and agree with you on that part in terms of being a ticket draw he's definitely a face of the league there's no question about that when you go through the top players in the league right now and who is a face he's in that conversation but is he a ticket draw on a nightly basis here in indy or when the bucks go play the spurs probably not uh, this from Bill on X, Twitter, whatever you want to call it. Watch for quick fouls to the Pacers stars to limit their effectiveness and assure the Bucks versus Lakers. Already? Bill, it's 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 12-22. Bill, here's the thing. If that was the case, and yeah, there's precedent. Tim Donahue, we get it. But if that was the case, wouldn't the NBA have said, you know what, <laughs> instead of waiting until Indiana travels to Las Vegas, instead of waiting for the Pacers to get on kayak and book their airline tickets through Spirit and flying out there, and instead of waiting for people from Indiana to fly out and stay at Circus Circus, and instead of waiting until it's already booked that it's going to be Tyrese Halliburton as the guy carrying one half the mantle for the East, maybe we should just make those calls and get Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown in instead when we had the opportunity. You think the Celtics would have been a better better team for that? Wow, that's a good point. I don't know why. Oh, oh you mean... The tying league leader for NBA championships, a staple of the NBA. Man, that's... Like Celtics versus Lakers <sighs> in the desert? Man, wouldn't that be Fire something? Fire it back up like it's 1984? Yes. A product you're trying to jumpstart and you could put the two biggest names franchise-wise in the sport together? Man. I get that fans are... I get the whole conspiracy theory thing, whatever else. I get it. But here's the thing. If the NBA used the in-season tournament to manipulate the st- the the matchups to get the most marquee event in lights in fabulous Las Vegas 
then in that event, you wouldn't have television market 50, which, and I don't mean this in all seriousness, and we're 20 years almost removed from it, but had a natural disaster that literally had like 30% of its population move forever in New Orleans. I mean, New Orleans is a fabulous city, but from a population standpoint, it is still trying to rebound as a shell of what it once was. So you've got that market in there, and then Indiana, obviously, and then you know Milwaukee has, sure, they have Giannis, but like if you want to go on and on about like let's they're going to stage it for Milwaukee. I, Milwaukee's a smaller city than Indianapolis. Who is right? that? Who is that writer? The the tweeter. Bill. Bill. The Denver Nuggets just won the championship last year. <laughs> okay. Come on. That's a big city. You kidding? Denver is a big city, but people think the, it's a small market, the, right? The, the league's NBA Finals MVP. No more than. Do quick math here. Six months ago, said, and I'm slightly paraphrasing here, it's over, we can go home now, after he won finals MVP and won the most prestigious prize in that league. And then, all of a sudden, there were 10,000 videos of him dancing in discotheques somewhere in Eastern Europe that looked like he might have actually been in the Galleria at Glendale. (laughs) And he was getting ready for his horses to go out to race. Exactly. Exactly. Love it, right? By the way, um, the total in the game has now gone up. Do you remember what it was at yesterday, Jake? I do. 160? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. The total the total of the Combined, two teams? Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, 260, right? It's getting close. It it was, wasn't it 251 and a half yesterday? 254 and a half. It's now 257. Yeah. I just heard this right before we came on, and it was a great question. Um, who is Thursday Night Football tonight? I know who it is because I heard a great stat yesterday. It's ugly as heck. Who is it? Patriots, Steelers. Okay. Do you want is there, is now, there a chance? Which, which higher number then? Okay. Is there a chance that tonight's over in the NBA game will have more points than one of those two teams has total yards? Oh, a hundred percent. That's a great. Yeah. That's a great one. Hundred percent. Um, you want me to do the stat now? Do it on the other side. How's All right. that? Okay. All right. And then Tony East set to join us potentially about one o'clock if we can get him up. We'll see. Uh, Len Dunn at one thirty today talking about the WNBA lottery and what is going to happen with the fever matt taylor voice of the colts two o'clock lance McAllister, cincinnati 2 30 loaded show on a thursday here a pacer game day if you will 93.5 the fan so it's thursday night football tonight the big marquee story of course is in season turn it's semi-final for the nba cup pacers bucks five o'clock tip coverage gets started right here on these very airwaves at 4 30 but for thursday night football this evening it's an ugly one and that's kind of commonplace Thursday night football, but it's definitely true tonight as the Steelers battle the Patriots. A matchup that's likely to feature the Biscuit himself, Mr. Trubisky, versus Bailey Zappi. Jake, the Patriots have scored a total of 13 points their last three games. And they're the first team to go 0-3 in their past three games with 10 or fewer points allowed during that span. It's not been a good stretch for them whatsoever. And when you add in where the Steelers are offensively, It gives us an incredible stat that I heard yesterday. Shout out to Tony Kornheiser and PTI. The lowest total in 30 years, if it holds, is currently at sportsbooks across the country right now. Do you want to guess what that is? Combined total for today's game. I'll let you both have a guess. The points total, I I have no idea. The points total in the Patriots 
Patriots You're talking about the, the over under Thursday night. Over under over under for points. Yep. Twenty seven and a half. Okay. Twenty two. Okay. We overshot. It's thirty, but it would be the lowest total since nineteen ninety three. And a lot of the still think of the conversations under. around this game says still take the under. Not just Jake's comment earlier about would there be more points combined scored in the Pacers Bucks games tonight than there would be yardage by either of these teams this evening on Thursday Night Football. I really hope this game lives up to, in terms of just gross, disgusting football, I'm sorry to bring it up, but it'll hit home this way if I do it this way, that that Colts-Broncos games that we all hold dear last year on Thursday Night Football lived up to. That's the type of ugly type of game I'm expecting tonight with Mitch Trubisky versus Bailey Zappi. Here's what happened to the New England Patriots. And there's kind of a lesson for the Indianapolis Colts in this. If you think back to the end of the Tom Brady era in New England, okay, the Patriots were winning all the time. Brady was obviously, you know, arguably the greatest of all time. Belichick is a great coach, etc. And in drafts each year, the and I think, by the way, the Colts have learned this lesson. Not from New England. I think they figured it out. But let me explain. Each year during the draft, what would Bill Belichick do when he started getting control of the franchise? You know, understandably so. But when he was operating football operations and coaching and everything else. Every year in the draft, what would you hear about the New England Patriots? What was the Patriots draft MO? It was trade back. Boy, I'll tell you what, Bill Belichick's just loading up on pieces. Yep. And he's the master at it because look at the number of guys that he just could plug in and he was able to push the right buttons, create the right schemes, come up with the right things out of the lab. That guy's a football genius and you do not want him having three picks in round five because he'll have three all-pro players. And for a while, that was true. And then what you found out was this. And I've always said this. Bill Polian was a, was a fabulous drafter. No question about it. Robert Mathis was a great pick. Dwight Freeney going where he did because many thought that it was too high and that he should have been a lower first-round pick was a great pick. Edron James was a great pick. But he also got some credit for guys that were either undrafted free agents or drafted late that were playing and filling roles for them. Jason David, Cato June drafted, changed positions, guys like that. And people were like, see the genius of of Bill Polian? Like, Jason David is, look at the talent that he found there. Well, the reality is that while, yes, those guys played well, they were a little bit masked by the talent of those around him in the elite level of players that were around them. And... It wasn't so much that the Colts had undrafted free agents or eighth or seventh round picks in certain positions that were so good they couldn't keep them off the field. It was rather they had so much money tied up in their top 10% of their roster that they had to put players on the field elsewhere because they were the economic way to round out the roster. You couldn't afford to have a third round pick at position number 20 on the field for you because of the fact that you were spending so much money in positions one through five. And so I think the Patriots, when they had Tom Brady and when they had, 
you know, even though Randy Moss didn't win a Super Bowl and was there for just, a, you know, a, a short period of time, but when they had elite level players, you know, Gronk, obviously Rob Gronkowski was, a, you know, one of the greatest ever. When you had guys like that making plays for you and carrying, you were band-aiding and masking a lot of deficiencies on your roster that you then began to believe that you had the Midas touch in rounds four through seven that other franchises did not. So you started to sacrifice drafting game-changing, space-creating, dynamic playmaker players because you were convinced you didn't need them. You didn't need them because you had Tom Brady and Rob Gronkowski. Once those guys were gone, all of a sudden, then you were old Mother Hubbard and you had nothing in your cupboard. And that's and, and for the Colts, when Peyton Manning got hurt, they realized – all of a sudden, why did the Colts suddenly become a, a team that won, you know, what started out 0-12? They went from a team that was expected to be in the playoffs to a team that was 0-12 because one guy went down. It's because the system was masking so many deficiencies that were placed around and sprinkled in because of economic reasons understandably why they were there but the Colts figured that out then they drafted Andrew Luck and they kind of fell victim to the same thing twice and I do think that Chris Ballard started early in his tenure buying into and subscribing to that theory and dropping back and dropping back and loading up on picks and people were like is this really the right way to do it and then finally he realized Jimmy quite frankly I've got to get specialty players I've got to get game changers it's great to have depth and it's great to have a bunch of guys I drafted in round three and five that are on my lines, but I'm going to go the way of the Peytonless Colts or the Bradyless Patriots and be circling the drain unless I go out and I get Anthony Richardson and I groom Michael Pittman and I draft Alec Pierce and let him develop and I go out and I get Jonathan Taylor and I re-sign him and I trade for Zach Moss. The Colts got smart. And we're starting to see the benefit of that because when their main piece went down, and yes, it's one of the pieces I'm talking about, ironically enough, but when Anthony Richardson went down, they suddenly were able to sustain a little bit because they actually had gone out and gotten guys that can keep you in games instead of a bunch of projects that were going to make you look like a genius. The most important position in the sport, as we know, is quarterback. And it's incredibly value to everybody involved, but nobody more so than a general manager. Because as long as you were the general manager that helped bring the quarterback into town and the quarterback is great and you're going to pay him a lot of money soon, you have A, that safety net of, well, there's not as much flexibility now. We got to get more creative because we're paying this quarterback X amount of dollars. So you have kind of that safety cushion built in. But also, whether you're a great GM, a good GM, or an average GM, and even if you're more towards that average conversation... If you have an otherworldly quarterback in your system, it masks so many other deficiencies about your team to the point that it gets overlooked when you have a couple of years with either bare covers or not a ton of impact players brought in on either side of the ball because, well, look who their quarterback is. They're still in these games. They have a great record. It's the blessing and the curse. Everybody would welcome the curse, but it's the curse aspect of when you finally have your quarterback you need to be perfect in order to sustain should something happen to the quarterback, but you can still afford to take risks because at the end of the day, as long as you have a QB1, you're probably going to be okay. The difference in being okay and being great is, 
are you a general manager? Are you a leader of a team that is able to still find value, whether it's trading back, whether it's in the second or third round, at key positions to help your team win? And even if you're good enough to do that, when the quarterback's finally gone, example A is what's happened in New England, now those deficiencies you previously had where you maybe weren't focusing on key position groups or maybe weren't being as aggressive in drafts as you could have or should have been get highlighted more so to the point that a Hall of Fame coach such as Bill Belichick can be looked at as maybe he should not be running Look, the team anymore. He's a brilliant coach, Belichick. There's no question, right. right? But I do think that there is the possibility that he fell victim to this, understandably so. Sure. He fell victim to the narrative that a I can build a great roster that lifts a good quarterback to great. And in reality, what he probably failed to perhaps realize, understandably so, is that he had a great quarterback that was lifting a good roster into great. And so, yeah. therefore, when they put in Mac Jones, and, and yeah, in the beginning, Mac Jones, you know, you for, you forget the hard knocks year, the Jonathan Taylor, whatever it was, 68-yard run or whatever it was that sealed that game. I mean, the entire world was stopped to watch the Colts and the Patriots because they were off to these fabulous starts. And Mac Jones, it was like, you know what? It, was, it wasn't Belichick. It wasn't Brady. It was Belichick. And look, he, they just plug in a new quarterback and they got the same thing rolling here and they're going along. And then, again, that got exposed because people figured it out. And we found out that Mac Jones is not what we thought he was going to be. And that's also – the, the cautionary tale for the rest of the league. You can look at, and, and quite frankly, so far, in the very, very, very small sample size we've seen, Anthony Richardson looks like the guy. No question. Okay? And there are other quarterbacks in the league that early on, you know, obviously I think we can say C.J. Stroud looks like the guy. And I think it's safe to say probably is. Probably is. I mean, what he's done is remarkable. But at the same time, you have to go through an entire year and oftentimes even two years for defenses to see you, understand your tendencies, make adjustments, start creating stunts, start creating different looks, start throwing you off, and then you find out the reality of who a quarterback is. And, and in Mac Jones's case, defenses made adjustments and he, didn't, he wasn't able to adjust back. And then now with Belichick pulling him on the final drive of a primetime game, that was basically him sending out a bulletin on every social media platform in America. He's, uh, it's done. Which time? Which time? The, the, the last time though, right? I mean, the, the last time, right? Because that, it goes against everything from a psychological standpoint of the sport, the way that right. they've handled Mac Jones, even but, though but, I don't think But the last there. time that they did Correct. it clearly yes. was, yes. okay, that, that's it. It's over. Correct. And whether he gets another opportunity remains to be seen, right? I mean, we'll see whether or not he does. Uh, Jeremiah Johnson, by the way, is Tony East is out. He overslept, I guess. Jeremiah Johnson is in. Uh, the Of course, from Bally Sports and the Indiana Pacers Television Network, Jeremiah Johnson going to join us from Vegas just 15 minutes from now. Jeremiah, <clears throat> excuse me, easy for me to say. Jeremiah Johnson coming up here at 1 o'clock. Pacers in action, 5 o'clock today. JMV done at 4.34, the pregame. He'll be at AJ's Bar and Grill, though, live from 3 to 4.30, and then I would assume hanging out for a little bit afterwards to watch a little bit of Pacers action today on a Sunsplash Thursday. How are you? My name is Jake Query. Jimmy Cook here as well. Eddie Garrison flying the big board for us. Uh, Jimmy, before we get to Jeremiah, here's a question for you. You ready? Sure. Do you think – I think I know the answer to this, right? Okay. 
Do you think the station would let me to, and, and I realize 90% of our listeners when I say this are going to go, yes, please do. Do you think they'd let me take 25 days off in October? You think they'd let me take an entire October off? I think if you have the days in your bank, you could at least negotiate a bit. Eh, that's probably questionable that that I would. Although I, you know, Dykton's taking twenty five days. Today's his birthday, right? Is today it Mark is. Dykton's birthday? It Happy is. birthday to Mark okay. Dykton. So Mark Dykton today is how old is Mark? Do we know? He's an age. Is he what? I'm going to guess Dykton's somewhere between zero and I'll say thirty one. Is that right? Thirty one. Does that sound good? Yeah. We'll go with that. I'll say so 33. He's celebrating by taking his 31st PTO day since That's good. <laughs> uh, since I, I met him. But So last night I'm watching, in my opinion, and I've mentioned it on this show before, I think The Amazing Race is the best show on television. Like, I mean, there have been great shows. Ted Lasso's a great show. Sure. The Wire's the greatest show ever made. But it, just in terms of like consistently from one season to the next, fun shows, The Amazing Race is really good. Now, you said you have or have not watched it. I have watched it. I've not watched this season, but I, I've seen it before. It's So it's two people per team. Sure. And they they do you know a race around the world by having to do different challenges that are indigenous and customary in the countries that, that they are in, right? And it makes for great television, and it's fun. The two-person teams, they've had like every possible scenario that you can think of they've had you know obviously married couple they've had uh, like same-sex relationship couple they've had uh, coach and player they've had father daughter they've had you know ex-wife and ex and, and the ex-husband I mean every possible pairing you can imagine so you would think because they're like 32 seasons into it they probably have run out of, of pairings right so and I I really think I, I don't know if I'd be any good at the Amazing Race, but I think it'd be fun. Oh man, are you gonna try to audition? So I thought, you know, what if I what if I applied for it and it says in the application you you have to now Rossi and Connor Daly did it. They had you know two IndyCar guys. Rossi and Daly did it, and they told me that the the drawback to it is when you agree to do it. So you start like in Los Angeles. You sign up that, yes, you are out of commission for three weeks because they can't reveal who the winner is. So if you come home in two days, everybody's going to know you didn't win. So even if you get eliminated like in the first – and I think it usually is like a four- to five-week filming. But if you get eliminated on in week one, you then basically get sequestered like at a resort for three weeks and you just hang out, okay? so And that would probably not be very much fun. But – so you're you're taking a risk there. All inclusive? Oh yeah, because you're like sequestered. Basically. I mean, you know, not you know a, not, I mean? a, not a terrible consolation prize. No, I get it. But here's the thing. So like you and I, it'd be hard because it would be like I, I I'm assuming they've had like a radio pair do it or like a media pair. Sure. And, and I would certainly be willing to do it with anybody from here as like a radio pair. You know what I mean to do that. But I think they've done that before. I, I thought, honestly, if I applied for it, and I haven't checked with him, but if I applied with Dr. Mottman, I would think cool. we'd have a good chance, That'd right? That'd be cool, yeah. The guy that, that did my heart surgery and then me, like, doing the race together. Awesome. I haven't seen that pairing. So I don't really care about Mottman other than the fact that, A, he saved my life, and B, he might be the conduit that allows me to go on the amazing race, right? I could use him for that, right? <laughs> I think so. I think we'd have a chance to get picked, right? You might own a couple more PBRs. But and then I think guess you can do what? It. It's the Jimmy and Eddie show for October of 24, right? 
We've done that before. Yeah, they've only had like 300,000 applicants. So probably I'm guessing that next October, you know, Lord willing, because we know how things go, that, that I'll still be here. Uh, Jeremiah Johnson next. Jeremiah Johnson is with Bally Sports Indiana Pacers in action in Las Vegas later today, of course, in the semifinals of the in-season tournament. Jeremiah, when he is not, of course, broadcasting Pacer games, actually he's broadcasting Pacer games when he's not either Charlie Cardinal or participating in the Peru-Indiana Circus Circus, so it's only fitting that the Pacers would be playing in Las Vegas. And J.J. joins us now. (laughs) Jeremiah, first off, um, to go back to it, I thought personally that the in-season tournament when they first announced it, and I know we're going on the way back here, but I I was a little bit confused by it. I kind of didn't get it. Uh, I Admittedly, open disclaimer, I don't actively follow – you know, like EPL soccer, so I know that there's the precedent overseas about how this would work. I thought it was a little hokey, and then I was in that Boston game, and the, uh, that's the most electric crowd that I have felt at a Pacer game in probably 10 years, and I had wow. to remind myself like five different times, this is a regular season game. This feels like a it, – it felt like literally – I, the next day, I had to get up and go over for qualifying at Indy. You know what I mean? And um, so it worked. I was wrong. It worked, and it's super cool. I would assume that you agree with that sentiment about the electricity against Boston. Yeah, I would agree. And I thought at the beginning, while I didn't quite understand the totality of it and the big didn't see the big picture, I thought it can't hurt anything because I do know some of the November and December games – can lose some interest. They can have trouble attracting attention on national shows, even on local shows at times, because it's football season and you're trying to just get some interest and get people talking about the NBA. So I figured it can't hurt anything and you're not really disrupting the 82 game regular season schedule at all. So why not give it a try? And I actually felt it the very first group play game when you walked out and you saw the court and they were able to keep that news I think under wraps a little bit and so no one really knew the courts were going to be different until that afternoon when the first games were being played and and Gamebridge Fieldhouse hosted the very first group play game and so then it immediately felt a little bit different and the Cavaliers had had guys if you go way back since we're going back uh, they'd had guys injured the entire first month of the regular season or first two to three weeks and everybody was healthy for that game and so that kind of was a trigger to me that yeah they're treating this like a big deal and the and the players for both teams, while it was not a playoff-like atmosphere, uh, I can only speak for you know my household. My son went with a friend, and they were fired up when they got home because they said, hey, the Pacers are 1-0 in the in-season tournament. And then you continue to follow. If you'd have lost that game, it may have not been as big a deal, and I'm not sure that they're having the same conversations today you know, in Denver or in Dallas or in Atlanta. But I know it works here, and that game against the Celtics – with all I've read in the last two days and the podcasts that I've listened to and just the voices that have talked about the Pacers that may have done so for the first time in probably three or four years, I don't know that there's a more impactful win for a franchise and what it could do for an organization than what the Pacers had against the Celtics. Jeremiah Johnson of Valley Sports Indiana is our guest. Jeremiah, when you look at the situation surrounding this matchup, not just the inaugural in-season tournament, not just the single elimination aspect of it, but the idea of a significant NBA game taking place on a neutral court, that there's not a ton of 
precedent for this? And I know that, that, that you guys specifically aren't out there, but but as you talk with those that are and as you watch this thing from afar, how is this unique take on an NBA game? Because the feel of it feels a lot like Jake and I were talking about earlier, an NCAA tournament game, not just because of the single elimination aspect, but the idea of an NBA game that is not All-Star Weekend taking place on a neutral site. Yeah, you know, when, with all the soccer references when this started and even the FIBA with the tiebreakers and the group play, I give credit to the NBA for pulling from other sports and other things that are successful and not just saying we're the NBA, we have to do it our way, and we would never have a, a neutral court game. And so this is a little bit of a goal. They threw, they threw Vegas in there as just another incentive for some of the players. And I'll tell you what, inside that Pacers locker room, even though they can go wherever they want in the off season, and many do spend time in Vegas during summer league, even if they're not playing, to get a trip there in December with your teammates and your buddies and to have uh, basically everyone take care of everything for you, you've just got to get on that plane and then walk to your room, and then they'll take you wherever you need to go, and you can have uh, the fun that you want to have. To have that opportunity in a neutral court environment – is something else I think they were excited about. Now, you were you guys were talking earlier in the show, and I heard talk about the attendance and what that will be like, and you referenced some NCAA tournament games. And I, I do think that's worth acknowledging or noting, even in a Sweet 16 game. I think most time in a Sweet 16 game, the arenas are, are pretty packed. In a first-round game, it's there's still juice in the building if every seat isn't taken. So I don't know what it's going to be like in Las Vegas, T-Mobile Arena, 18,000 fans and 2 o'clock on a Thursday in Las Vegas and with the short turnaround. If you are if you won in Milwaukee and you're a Bucks fan and you wanted to decide to go, you had to pull the trigger pretty quickly um, to make arrangements. So I do I do think it'll be a challenge for the league to, to get that completely filled. But we've seen them put on shows and on TV, I'm guessing it will look like a pretty big atmosphere and a pretty big deal. And I do look forward to, uh, after the fact, talking to some of the players, coaches, people that are on on the grounds there to see what it was like but uh we're not used to seeing neutral court i saw one in london with my own eyes i hope this game goes better than that uh, pacers nuggets game i saw in london in i think 2017 jeremiah obviously tyrese halliburton is playing at you know at times he's the first guy that i've seen victor oladipo had a little of this but that, that has that lightning in a bottle capability right where all of a sudden he hits a couple of them from real deep and you go okay he's feeling it it's like NBA jam like he's on fire get him the ball right his defense at times is obviously less than desirable but they've they've gotten good play from a lot of players so at the risk of sounding negative but simply being realistic the guy that Indiana right now needs to get more consistency out of if they want to maintain the level of feel good nature they got from that Boston game the guy that is the most important to them from a consistency standpoint is who uh I guess I'll give you two sometimes that's cheating a little bit but I'd go with Buddy Hield and Miles Turner they're they're the most experienced players that are getting uh, regular minutes. I mean, Bruce Brown's probably up there as well, but you know Buddy's going to be on the court, and he had, he's had he been a little streaky this season. He had that stretch of three games that started when he went into the starting lineup in Atlanta, where I think he was 16-24 to 24 from three. Now, you, you can't say he has to do that in every three-game stretch, but then he, he fell off just a little bit. Um, and so his ability to stretch the defense, he's going to do that even if he goes through a cold spell. But you almost want to look down at the box score after every game and just assume he's going to have three or four made three-pointers. And that's, you know, nine or 12 points that you just count on every single night 
from Buddy Heald. Been a little up and down, but I, they found something. They really found something that they knew was there all along and how well he plays with Tyrese Halliburton. So as long as those two can continue to click and Buddy can be consistent, I, I would say Buddy. But Miles Turner gets more opportunities now with Tyrese Halliburton than he had in his first seven years with the Pacers. And so he's going to have to continue to confidently shoot the threes. His percentages are down just a little bit this season compared to last season, but consistency probably important. And, you know, he has attacked mismatches and and smaller players on the post more this season than I think we've seen from him in the past. He's got to, he's attacked the offensive glass and second chance opportunities more this season than he has in the past. So um, I'm not saying he's been inconsistent, but you need those two players to continue to be, I say 15 to 18 point per game guys, because then you know if, if Tyrese gets to 30, then all of a sudden you're in a pretty good spot. He had 44 last Thursday in Miami, and no one else had more than 11. And so that would be the one time that I don't think the supporting cast stepped up to match Tyrese Halliburton, and that's why they lost that game. Is Benedict Matherin one of those guys, and I don't mean this as a detriment to him, Jeremiah, but is Benedict Matherin one of those guys that to get the most out of him – when he's on the floor, he's got to be the guy that is the straw mixing the drink and that it's difficult for him to be an auxiliary piece because he has an alpha in him that means that for him to flourish, he has to be the guy. Yeah, I'm. were you thinking of Benedict Matherin when you asked the previous question? Is that where you were You were No, leaning? actually, no, I, I, because he's a young player, right? I mean, I think they're right. still feeling out who exactly – now, I will say, and I've mentioned on this show before – For Benedict Matherin, the thing to me that's intriguing is I think that, and I still think that he is going to be a really good career Robin to Tyrese Halliburton's Batman, but I think that maybe there was the thought that he would be that a little bit earlier and therefore you could kind of start to move Buddy Heald back a little bit. And then I think they realized, you know what, Buddy Heald, let's insert him back in because Matherin just isn't quite ready for that moment yet. And that might be why, because he's learning those roles. You agree yeah, with that? That's a, yeah, that's a that's a fair assessment, and I was I was a little surprised, but it made complete sense in that in season tournament game in Atlanta that you saw the the starting lineup that that Tyrese was maybe a little more comfortable with guys that could play exactly the way he wants to play, and he knows where they're going to be at all times and what they're going to do with the basketball. I, I do need to just kind of caution the fans just a little bit that Benedict Matherin is twenty years old, and the style the Pacers are playing with with Tyrese Halliburton. It's not only unique to the NBA, it's, it's pretty unique to any level of basketball. And so um, it takes, I think, a little bit of time to adjust to this fast-paced style to get it out of the basket, even if you give up points, and to try to get down the other end of the court and to move it around the perimeter, and you don't want any ball stopping. And it, I haven't watched a lot of I, – I didn't watch a lot of Matherin at Arizona, and, and obviously at levels before that, you don't know how the game was played. But my guess is this is just a transition in terms of how you're used to playing and then how you adjust to playing in this style. And I I agree with you that big picture, two, three years down the road, it would be ideal if he can be that Robin and Tyrese Halliburton's uh, the Batman and and the backcourt is those two guys moving forward. But it's not there yet. And so he has thrived in an off-the-bench role as a rookie really from day one last season. And so get him in that role, have him a little more comfortable. Andrew Nembhard and T.J. McConnell, if they're running with him, they know 
where he's going to be. They know he would have to be the guy to generate a lot of offense with that group, and so they're going to make sure he gets those opportunities. So it was a great decision, I think, from the coaching staff. It may have not been what Benedict Matherin wanted at the time, and he may see himself as a starter right now, but it's just his second year. He's he's still learning things, and there is still time for that relationship and that on-court chemistry with Halliburton to grow if it's not to the level maybe you'd like to see it just yet. Jeremiah Johnson of Bally Sports Indiana joins us. Pacers-Bucks tonight. NBA in-season tournament semifinals out in Las Vegas. Jeremiah, my answer, maybe a dark horse answer to Jake's earlier question about who's most important or impactful or who needs to step up tonight would be Aaron Neesmith when I'm looking at defensively who's going to draw these assignments for the Pacers going up against Milwaukee, this time pretty much at full strength when you look at the last matchup back last month or early on in the season when Giannis goes for 54, but you can kind of double him late and dare other bucks to shoot you. With Damian Lillard out there, for me, Neesmith, in theory, would be somebody late-game situations I would guess would draw that assignment. So kind of a two-part question. A, am I right on that? And B, whose weight does Giannis fall on late defensively for the Pacers? Do you imagine it being Miles Turner, or do you think it is a combined effort once again, even though Damian Lillard is out there now? Yeah, your backup center position is not where it was to start the season. No Daniel Tice, no Jalen Smith for this game. So it's vital that Miles Turner does not get in foul trouble. So for that reason alone, I would worry a little bit about from opening tip and throughout that Miles Turner is guarding Giannis because he's just going to he's going to draw some fouls. He's going to get to the free throw line. And if two minutes in, Miles gets a foul and four minutes in, he gets a second foul and then he's playing the whole game, not free flowing but worrying about getting fouls it's really going to impact your entire game and your rotation plan so with that in mind Aaron Neesmith is a very logical player Obi Toppin is turning into a little bit more of an option defensively than I maybe would have thought at the start of the season and I was really impressed with how he played against Jimmy Butler on the second game in Miami now maybe what I'm seeing is he may be a guy moving forward against a really good wing let's say you play Paul George in the Clippers or even with Kawhi on the court and Obi's guarding one of those two guys and, and you like what he can do based on how he did against Jimmy Butler. I'm not 100% sure if he's the guy you want to guard uh, Giannis, but Aaron Neesmith could be maybe not in the starting lineup, but maybe four minutes in, maybe an early check-in, and I would say he may play third or fourth most minutes of any pacer in this game because of how well he's impacting the game on defense, but then also offensively. I don't know if the Pacers win that game without two or three possessions before the Tyrese Halliburton four-point play where you need someone to make a play, and he was the one that had the confidence, and he was the one that had the ability to finish. So uh, I I think for this game specifically, yes, Aaron Neesmith is going to be huge offensively and defensively. Jeremiah Johnson is our guest. Of course, you see him on Bally Sports Indiana as the sideline reporter and the pre- and post-game host for the Pacers television broadcast he also is a retired was it trapeze artist is that what you were jeremiah <laughs> yeah i think this is my first uh, circus and mascot discussion on query and company so i'm glad mm-hmm. you could carry this over from your it's previous, a tradition like uh, unlike any other yes your previous shows mm-hmm. i was just in side by side so technically it was a trapeze but not of the <laughs> variety that you would you would envision from flying across the uh, three rings were you just a one year and done in the peru circus for those who don't know, yeah. Jeremiah, a native of Peru, the amateur circus capital of the world, which for a year was the professional circus because he was in it. Uh, were, were you just in it for a year? 
just one year. There was a unique quirk where where I was at. You could not play Little League Baseball until age Ooh, eight. Yeah. And I don't know that I didn't want to play T-ball, so I did the circus at age seven. Now, did you have to wear tights? Oh, yeah. Yeah. it's uh, <laughs> uh, We've had this discussion. Maybe we should have it again in, in July when it's top of mind. But it's it's a, it's the real deal. I invite anyone listening to uh, to make the trip to Miami County the third week in July. It's right. the first I've, I've heard of this. This is fascinating. Uh, of the well, Peru Circus or of Jeremiah's participation? Oh, Jeremiah's participation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Jeremiah, just so you know, Jeremiah began, as, as he just mentioned, he was a trapeze artist, and, and amongst other things, he downplays it, Jimmy, quite frankly, downplays it. But Houdini, you know, Houdini tells people he did card tricks, right? I mean, right. Yeah. And, and so, and then JJ, because of the fact that he was the, he was basically, you know, a lot of people don't know this, he was the high flyer in Peru, and then he went to Ball State, and they knew of his high-flying trapeze antics, and so he became Charlie Cardinal. You were the only mascot that actually flew through the arena, right? Through Worthen Arena? Uh, you know, they would not trust me to that. I don't know if the apparatus could hold me. I was a little I was on the larger <laughs> side of most cardinals. Most mascots are a little smaller, so I did fit into the costume, but I was not going to be the kind like boomer uh, you know, going down from the rafters. If the play in tournament had existed in nineteen ninety eight, would Michael Jordan or Dennis Rodman be the one guy that missed a game? <laughs> if it was in Vegas. Well, we already saw Jordan, the quote-unquote flu game. He was able to play the next day. So while he would have enjoyed Vegas for sure, I'm guessing he would have figured out a way to get back on the court. Uh, for Rodman, he'd have been probably the guy that, you know, there's three bus times, and by the time you, you had the two buses leave for the arena and you're looking down at your list and you're like, is he going to make this third bus or are we going to have to go knock on his door and get him out of his room? That's what, I'm guessing Rodman would be a bigger challenge. You know, the quote-unquote flu game, I'm just going to leave that there, but I'm with you, right? I'm with you on that. I got the tinfoil hat on that one. Uh, <laughs> Denver as well in 96 and the 72 win, but people can Google that. Um, JJ, what about Milwaukee for the Pacers? Is getting, Other than the obvious, you know, Giannis, I, I thought they did a really good job the first time that the Pacers played Milwaukee of having Nimhard and then at times I think maybe Neesmith kind of intercept Giannis when he came across the timeline and just basically cut off the snake at the head right across the timeline and that kind of stalled Milwaukee's offense. Of course, they didn't have some of their bigger offensive weapons aside from Giannis at that time. What do they do differently, if anything, this time around in trying to corral him again and keep Milwaukee at bay? What I'll be watching is uh, the, the final four to five minutes. That's why the Pacers won that game. I think they were down 10 with five or six minutes to play. And you started doubling him and making it difficult for him to make any decision, as as you kind of referenced there with, with Nemhard flying at him a little bit. But they were – they were basically saying get the ball out of his hand, similar to what Atlanta did against Tyrese Halliburton in that fourth quarter of that game, and, and Tyrese has seen a couple of other times. So what I'm going to be watching is out of a timeout first half, do they play three possessions where they're, they're double-teaming and they're swarming him and they're living with, okay, if someone else gets a shot, you're okay with that. My guess is early on you do that for the times that Giannis is on the court and Damian Lillard is not because you do not want to let him get those open looks from three. Um, Giannis, for the last few seasons, it felt like he was trying to expand his game and maybe shoot more three-pointers. In that game at Gamebridge Fieldhouse, he went back to the old Giannis, where he was going to lower his head, he was going to attack the basket, 
and that's problematic. I still would rather him shoot outside than do anything inside the paint. So we'll see what happens. But will they throw? Will they, they're going to treat this like it is a playoff game, like it's game seven of a series in late April or in May. And so with that in mind, the substitution patterns, the different defensive schemes, maybe you throw some zone out there to just give yourself a little bit of help with Giannis in the paint. And you may give up more three-point looks than this defense is currently devised to give up. And you just hope Chris Middleton and some of the other guys on that team don't have career days. And you still would rather probably those shots happen than Giannis, but Damian Lillard is definitely an X factor that I'll be interested to see how he fits uh, with Giannis, having not seen it the first time. You know, I, I realize, Jeremiah, that you cover the Pacers, and so therefore you are absolutely entitled to say, look, I haven't seen enough to know this answer. But just in, in kind of your assessment of Milwaukee, you, when you have two great players like Giannis and Damian Lillard, you know, sometimes it takes a while, and Lillard was, was hurt for a while there, you know, Giannis has missed some games. Sometimes it takes a while for guys to figure out how to kind of mesh and coexist. Has that happened so far in Milwaukee, or do you think that's still a process for them? I'd say it's a process, and it's not just those two guys, but to make a coaching change uh, off of a team that was the number one seed in the Eastern Conference, people forget. They were the team everyone expected to be in the finals, and then they ran into Jimmy Butler having a career series, and that led to a trickle-down effect of most likely coaching change. And I don't even know if they make that trade for Damian Lillard if they get by the heat and advance to the finals like many had expected. And so it's a combination of those two guys playing together, and then Adrian Griffin, is he you know, implementing different styles? Maybe he's the one telling Giannis, get back to what you do best, get back in the paint, draw some fouls. Uh, but after that first Boston game, the one the Pacers lost by 51, I think, I told their sideline reporter, I said, I think in, when this season is done, uh, the Celtics are going to be the happiest team of that sort of two-tiered trade um, compared to the Bucks because they got Drew Holiday. Now, revisionist history or maybe recency bias, Drew Holiday did not have his best game on Monday night at Gambridge Fieldhouse, and then there's a decent chance Damian Lillard has a good good week this week, and, and the Bucks are very happy to have Lillard and to not have Drew Holiday. The biggest thing is, early on, defensively, the Bucks have not been as good. But if those two players are on the court, it gives Giannis some help and another option in a late-game critical clutch situation, and that's where they hope they can be better than they were when they lost that series to the Heat. Jeremiah, what's more important to a Pacers win this afternoon? North of 40% from beyond the arc or single-digit turnovers limited in terms of how they take care of the basketball? That's a pretty good question. I would say they could probably go mid-30s on their three-point percentage, and uh, the turnovers might be the key because uh, the Pacers, you know they're going to get out and run when they get the opportunities, but you don't want the Bucks. They're going to execute in the half court. If they can execute in the half court and they also – get those turnovers, and you allow Giannis to get out and transition on a fast break, I don't know how you stop him in that situation. If, if there's a steal and he gets the ball at half court, uh, you can't do the take fouls anymore, but if you could figure out a way to, to make some take fouls before he gets to the paint, I would advise doing that. Um, so I think the turnovers are probably the most important. And uh, I mentioned that reading a lot of different articles and different um, listening to podcasts this week, it was really amplified from David Thorpe in an article on his Substack that I read this morning about the number of possessions and the pace the Pacers are playing. And to do that and still be near the top of the league in the least amount of turnovers per game 
should not go unnoticed, should not be glossed over. That That's really hard to do. You would expect a little bit more of a carefree atmosphere, uh, more turnovers when you're running up and down and, and trying to push the envelope, envelope a little bit offensively. And to be down in single digits in that same time, that's been a reason they've been able to beat some of these good teams. So I'll, I'll try to say keep those turnovers to around 8, 9, 10, and as long as you're in the mid-30s or in the 30s somewhere, threes, I think you still could win the game. Jeremiah, we appreciate the time as always. I know it's obviously a busy time of year, you know, with just the games in general, family, holidays, etc. So we do appreciate the time. And the next time that you're on, I will wait and stave it until the second to next time you're on to again call you the high-flying Jeremiah Johnson. How's that? Well, I will say this must be a big week because I hit the uh, 107.5, the fan trifecta. I got JMV one day. I got the wake-up call yesterday, and I got the call. Even though I think I was a last-minute fill-in, I won't be offended. But you saved uh, the best for last, did you not? Well, I know, but I don't know that I've been on with you two together. So I was hoping I hadn't done anything wrong, but I'm glad to get I'm glad to get the invite. That trifecta used to get you a free sub. I don't know what it gets you nowadays, but uh, <laughs> and I'll tell you what, Jeremiah makes a good beer, also. Just so you know, yeah, Jeremiah I was gonna say Johnson. it gets me a free hat from Jeremiah Johnson's Brewing Company. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's that's, exact, that's and, exactly uh, right. To Jake. Yeah, appreciate it, man. Okay. All right, Jeremiah Johnson from Valley Sports, Indiana. Speaking of the Fieldhouse, speaking of the Pacers franchise, the organization, big event taking place coming up that we're going to talk about next. As a matter of fact, this event is taking place on Sunday. It might even involve some ice skating, potentially, and some players. We'll explain next. Twisted Sister may not want to take it anymore but i can tell you right now that if the indiana fever end up with the number one overall pick in the WNBA draft they will gladly take it they'll take whatever player is going to be available to them but a uh, cool opportunity coming up this weekend for folks that have not seen perhaps even the fabulous renovations to the field house or have not gotten a chance to go ice skating at the field house or just simply want to meet fever players and get involved in the festivities that are hopefully celebrating their luck in the draft lottery this Sunday. We'll get you the information on how, on how all of that can unfold for you. Joining us now on the program. She is, of course, the human espresso machine. I'm talking about Lynn Dunn, who is instant energy. Uh, Lynn, first off, good afternoon to you. Always fun to talk to you. I assume you're all ready for the weekend, right? I'm ready. How about y'all? But I think this weekend, we got to talk about the Pacers just a little bit. we got to go go Pacers. Let me tell you something. Lynn, I was just saying with Jeremiah Johnson, and I will say what I've been saying till I'm blue in the face, or in this case, blue in the gold in the face. When the in-season tournament was announced, you know, I was a little bit like weary of it and like skeptical. That game, I've said this a million times, our listeners are probably tired of hearing me say it. Lynn, that game against Boston, literally every other possession I was having to remind myself, this is not the playoffs. It feels like it. It was an unbelievable atmosphere, and for the NBA, mission accomplished. I think people are totally jacked up about them playing today at 5 o'clock. The environment reminded me of the night we won the championship. People are hanging from the rafters. They're screaming. They're hollering. They're excited. And so the Pacers have created that type of energy and excitement again in the city. Now, so Eddie, did we lose Lynn? Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna hang on just a second here and try to reconnect with Lynn Dunn, um, who was hanging from the rafters actually to make that call in, in the service. But uh, she's right though, Jimmy. I, I think I told you you were. I, I can't remember. I think it was when you were still on jury duty. I left that game, and literally like 
10 minutes later, just out and about in the parking garages, people were still honking, high-fiving, jumping up and down, whistling. It was unbelievable. Yeah, it and was, I'm like, this is December, right? It was after playoff-like parking garage exit atmosphere for sure. Yeah. And that's what you want to hear from the in-season tournament. That's what the NBA wanted. That's what, no doubt, the Pacers players wanted. You're talking about a game in December before Christmas Day with high-level relevancy because of this thing. Now, give, give me the explanation that you just used again that was post-game parking lot. What yeah, that the, walkout. You know, what like was the, it, I know. What's the term you use? Because that's perfect. I think I just say, yeah, that, that parking lot walkout, right? That exit parking atmosphere. Parking lot walkout atmosphere. Yes. That's what you want. Correct. That's the goal in any game, right? Yes. You want a bunch of honking fans like, yeah, go Pacers. You I want mean, people high-fiving each other. Get out I, of it was unreal. Like To the point where people were in such a good mood that one guy yelled into my car to, to let... Uh, he was on the... He, he yelled to Shannon... He pointed at me and said, let him know I'm in the company. And I'm like, that's how good a mood everybody was in, right? <laughs> yes. Did we reconnect, Eddie? Let's hope so. I think I think we've got her. Okay, we're going to try Lynn Dunn again, who is still the human espresso machine, because it's, Lynn, I've got to ask you, and I say this every time we talk, because I okay. love it and people love it about you. The, the the overall like energy and enthusiasm, the thing I love about you is you're just one of those people that you get the feeling in talking to you, you just don't have time to waste time, right? Like, life is too short. Let's just go for it. I, like, I love it. Well, I'm in the twilight of my life. I've got to live every minute to the max here. You know, I don't <laughs> no. have that much time left. I'm not one of these spring chickens. I'm an old chicken. No, you're <laughs> infinite. You are infinite. Come on. Oh, man. It's an exciting time for the Pacers. It's also an exciting time for the Fever because we, we're going to have this draft lottery Sunday. We've got more balls than anybody. We've got a bunch of ping pong balls, and we're hoping to get that number one pick again. Now, I'm going to operate under the assumption, and I don't know this, Lynn Dunn, as the general manager of the Fever, that you are not uh, allowed maybe even to say names of players, especially before you even know where you're drafting. But is it safe to say that this is a draft that has, at this point at least, a pretty clear number one player? I would say there is a pretty clear number one player, and we would love for that pretty clear number one player to come to Indy and play with Aaliyah Boston and Erica Wheeler and Alyssa Smith and Kelsey Mitchell. And, yeah, there's a pretty clear number one player. You know, at Halloween when I was a kid, I used to like Boston. The little Boston baked beans was a candy. And then a thing that I always thought went well with them were Clark candy bars. Is that a, a safe assumption that'd be a nice combo to have? You have just hit a Grand Slam home run. <laughs> I could be the assistant. Even even I, right, can figure that out. Um, but I want to talk about this, Lynn, regardless of what player it's going to be. And, and I think people know who, who the big prize is here. But you're going to get a good player because you're drafting high, no matter who it is. One of the things to me that is interesting, and, and I, I read this the other day, and I wanted you to expand upon it, you know, a lot of times in the WNBA, in the offseason, players kind of disperse and they're going in a million different directions to play in different international leagues or do different things. And the Fever, by what I can see, have figured out ways and developed ways not only for, for the team to stick around with one another in the important offseason months, but to be able to do so as part of the Indianapolis community, which I think is super cool and advantageous not only for the community, but for the roster itself. Can you expand a little bit upon those initiatives? You are exactly right. We've got five uh, fever players here in the off season, out in the community, making appearances, working out in the weight room, working out on the court. Uh, we've got full-time coaches here that are working with them with their player development, skill development, 
full-time strength coaches in there trying to get them stronger, but we're giving back to the community as much as possible uh, here in the off season. It's, I don't know if you were familiar or not, but Erica Wheeler had a fantastic camp this fall in October for the kids, the local kids. Uh, so we're, we're, we're committed to doing whatever we can to win basketball games, but also to give back. Coach, we know it's a team game, but a year ago when you used the number one pick to select Aaliyah Boston, who by all accounts was a consensus number one, and she delivered that in her rookie season, unanimous rookie of the year, leads the league as a rookie, first player ever to do this in field goal percentage, just under 58%. In some ways, was she even better than you thought she could be as a rookie, or did she meet the expectations that you had? She met a lot of the expectations that we had, but we were surprised at her poise, at her composure on the court, off the court. Um, it, it's it's a real tough thing to be the number one pick and then to come in and play for a team, uh, you know, that's fighting for a, a playoff spot. You know, we don't have all the talent that maybe Las Vegas has and New York had. So she had to really step in and, and really carry some of the load. But she's a great person on the court and off the court. When you are assessing players, Lynn Dunn, you know, there are some players that are such great players that you say, we'll find a way to make it work, right? And then there are other players that you look at and you say, that player molds to exactly what our need is. How do you determine, if you will, that that line, so to speak? In other words, how many players in a typical draft are such that you're like, Look, they might even have something that we already have, but we are going with it right now because they are that good. Or do you draft to specific need at this point because you've been able to build in other areas? A little bit of both, you know, a little bit of both. But I can tell you this, if they are a great person and a great player, then we're going to find a way to make them fit this franchise because that culture, uh, you know, we want a championship without the most talent. And, and we really feel like we can get back in the playoffs next year, and we still won't have the most talent. We won't have the talent of a New York or Las Vegas, but let us get in those playoffs, and you better watch out. Coach, when you look at this team, you improved by eight wins from a year ago. General Manager of the Indiana Fever, the Hall of Famer, Lynn Dunn, joins us. Eight-plus wins year over year, but clearly not where you want to go. When you look at this team – what is missing? Is there a couple things you can pinpoint and say, hey, this is really what we need to get ourselves back on that path, like you mentioned, to championship-level basketball? I tell you what we need. We need for our babies to be a year older. You know <laughs> what I'm saying? I, we need to quit changing their diapers at halftime. They just need to grow <laughs> up, You know, be, be, be a little tougher, be a little bit more experienced. And I think that's where Erica's helped us by bringing her in with her experience to help these young um, players grow up. But, you know, you can't skip some of these steps. That's just part of the growth process. The great thing is, is how gifted they are, how talented they are, and how much potential they have in the future. And so, you know, I think we've, we've brought in some great people here. Looking forward to seeing how, what type of growth Grace Berger has, Boston has, and Melissa Smith continues to grow, Lexi Hole continues to grow. And then let's add a free agent or two in the off season and bring in that uh, that candy bar we like. <laughs> now, when you watch, just out of curiosity for the holiday season, when you're watching Christmas Vacation, is it safe to say that Clark is your favorite character? 
I'm a I'm a fan of Superman. Clark Kent was always my number one. <laughs> That's right. Superhero. <laughs> Anything super, right? Anything super with Clark in it, like let's go. By the way, fever.wnba.com is the website where you can find out all the information for the watch party for the lottery at 3.30 on Sunday. The actual WNBA lottery is going to be at 4.30, and that includes a chance to meet a couple of the players. Scheduled right now, Lexi Hull, Grace Berger, who you just heard right now are scheduled. That's subject to change, of course. But uh, I've got to ask, Lynn, People are also going to get the opportunity if they go on the website and get tickets to do so to ice skate. Have you skated yet in the rink out there outside? I have not skated in the last 40 years. <laughs> Roller skated or ice skated See. or skied. I, that That is something I gave up um, in the interest of my health and welfare that I could make it to this age. So, the, no, I listen. have not. But I do understand that they have some... Look, they look like walkers if you're scared when you're skating that you can hold on to, and I highly recommend them. Let me tell you, those kinds of smart health decisions, though, are why you are not in the twilight of your life. That's what I'm telling you. Like, you haven't even reached halftime yet. Well, they're, they're why I'm still alive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you and me both, probably. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun, though, right? And, and lastly, to kind of round it out, Lynn, you know, this is, again, what I like about it is this is the opportunity Sunday for not only people to continue to get the next jolt of energy to be excited about the trajectory of the fever, but also to kind of interact, get to know the fans, and for the fans to get to know the franchise. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, I hope everybody will come out. It's going to be in the pavilion here in beautiful, gorgeous Christmas decorated uh, Gambridge Fieldhouse. And, you know, we're, we're looking forward to a fun afternoon. Uh, but at the same time, let's don't lose track of our Pacers tonight. Now we got to beat the Bucks. Beat the Bucks. Okay, so actually, let's get your scouting report real quick. I thought last time that they they played Milwaukee, they did a really good job late in the game of kind of catching up with Giannis right when he'd crossed the half court line, and it kind of stalled Milwaukee's offense. Obviously, mm-hmm. Damian Lillard was not there. What's the what's the scouting report on what the Pacers need to do tonight? Well, they made the adjustment that they made late in the game. They made to make that adjustment, I think, a little earlier. And and I tell you what, the other night when they beat the Celtics, the defense that they played in the third quarter uh, versus the Celtics was one of the best defensive nights I've seen them have in a long time. And I think they're going to score. There's no doubt. Our Pacers are going to score. We've just got to tighten it up a little bit on the defensive end. I thought that Aaron Neesmith – there were, with seven minutes to go in that game and, and towards the end of the third as well. But as as you probably, you know, you do know, Lynn Dunn, sometimes to win big moments or big games, you need guys or gals to make championship-level plays that are not going to be those that get the headlines. And I thought defensively speaking in general, Aaron Neesmith was the guy that kind of catapulted that. And while we pay attention to players one, two, and three, sometimes it's those that are perfectly willing to be five, six, and seven but make one, two, and three plays that are the difference. And I thought that was the difference for them defensively. Do you coach? You sound like a coach. <laughs> well, I, I know. I just here's the thing. I, I'm like the dumbest guy on the planet, but I surround myself with people that are smarter than I, and then I just pick and choose where osmosis comes into play. Well, I give you credit wherever you got that idea. It's pretty astute. Well, I appreciate that, and we look forward to it tonight. Five o'clock tonight, Pacers and the Bucks. Then three thirty, everything getting underway at the Fieldhouse on Sunday. Fever draft lottery. 4.30. Again, fever.wnba.com where you can find that information. Uh, enjoy the game and then enjoy Sunday as well, Lynn. We appreciate the time. 
Hey, thank you guys. Love always love talking to you. Always appreciate it. Lynn Dunn, the general manager of the Indiana Fever, always one of the most fun conversations. And I love the fact that she completely took a bite out of that Clark candy bar and knew exactly where I was going with it. Yeah, that. I hope we're sending some over to the uh, field house here uh, come this weekend. Boy, I'll tell you what, if they draft her, they've got to send some Clark candy bars over here, don't they? And yeah. like send them out to fans, not here necessarily, but to sure. fans, it's yeah, perfect. I would agree. See, see, this is the kind of marketing stuff that like, you know, that, that, that just, unfortunately for me, I come up with these things and then I forget them like an hour later. This feels like the rare 2 a.m. jQuery idea that <laughs> resurfaced itself at 2 in the afternoon. Love that th- th- those, those ideas are not rare at 2 in the morning. It's just rare that they're actually good ones <laughs> sure. at 2 in the morning, right? I'm telling you, I, I read somewhere that people that are insomniacs are usually the most creative. I have no idea if that's true or not, but I'm certainly going with it. Jake, I got some... You just asked for the breaking news sounder, Jimmy. I did. It's correct. I was going to hold out and say no. I appreciate you doing that. I caved. Th- thank you. Uh, I'm glad, glad that one voice in the room will uh, force you to hit a, hit a uh, hot key. From our own Kevin Bowen on 107.5thefan.com, out at Colts practice, their first official practice of the week, as we know, walk through Wednesdays, completed yesterday. Guys that aren't participating at practice, Braden Smith, EJ Speed, and Jonathan Taylor. Again, they are not participating as things stand. And for the first time in six weeks, Juju Brents is practicing. Big development in terms of looking at matchups for this weekend against Cincinnati's weapons. Well, especially when you consider, yes, that's exactly right. Like The question is going to become, can Cincinnati get the ball to their playmakers? But what is not in question is that there are playmakers there, right? Yes. Yeah, you look down the list. T. I Higgins, love Juju Brents, Tyler man. Boyd, Jamar I'm Chase. telling you, I, I didn't think I would say this. <clears throat> When at least at the beginning of the, excuse me, the beginning of the year, but I love his length, and I almost hate saying that because it sounds so whatever. But he does have Juju Brents, like his size for a corner. I love because he has at this point still the athleticism because he's a young guy yeah. to be able to to, you know, give him flexibility of, of collapsing angles, but. Close the gap, other thing, close throws close gaps, yeah, yeah. The other thing that I like about him is he just has kind of a tenacity about himself. Mm-hmm. He 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 is not afraid of the moment, and he's got some nastiness, no question about it. And it's not all that surprising, Jake. You're right, and you and I have discussed this ad nauseum. You're right that the idea of him being a key piece like this when training camp started, that part is crazy. But when you look at the rest of that room, the idea of an opportunity for him to make an impact that early is not a crazy thought because of just how shorthanded that room had been going into the 2023 campaign and everything else that followed within the offseason itself. That part, the opportunity isn't surprising. What's surprising is the fact that he seized it and is such an important piece that you're longing for him to be back down the stretch here of this postseason run. Also not surprising is that Matt Taylor, the voice of the Colts, is going to make time for us because he does it each and every week and he's going to do it in just a couple minutes. By the way, one note before we get to what's happening on West 56th within the AFC South. Eddie Garrison, you had just made the observation that, to the surprise of many perhaps, there is one guy, even though we know Christian Kirk is going to be out for probably the remainder of the season for Jacksonville, there is one guy that is practicing, correct? That is correct. Uh, The Jags tweeted out a video of Trevor Lawrence 
of him throwing the football in a red con- a non-contact jersey out there at practice today for the Jags. So was he going through practice itself or just throwing the ball around? He had his helmet on, so I would assume he was going through practice. Uh, joining us now is Matt Taylor, the voice of the Indianapolis Colts. And Matt, uh, obviously our focus here is on what's happening with the Colts themselves. And we were just discussing uh, a guy who I love his upside and I think is a going to be a big player for them down the stretch, perhaps Juju Brents. And he is back on the practice field today as well, correct? Yep, he's back there today. We'll, we'll find out what his designation is. But the fact that he's out there in any capacity is good. So whether it was limited or full, um, that's certainly a, a step in the right direction. I, I think this is his first game or first week that he's practiced at all since he left the Cleveland game early. That was back on October 22nd. So um, going into this week, you're right, Jake, he was in danger of missing his sixth consecutive game. Um, so the fact that he's out there today is really, really big. Now, whether or not he can um, you know, get out there and play and start and go from you know, missing five games to playing 60, 70 snaps, I don't know. But um, it, it's really big in terms of his development as a rookie to get back at practice and get back on the game field. You know, Juju Brents, and you know Matt, maybe quite frankly, it's even too early in his career to determine this, but I really was impressed with him, uh, to my surprise, quite frankly, just because of, not because of him, but I mean, the fact he was a rookie that missed some camp. I really liked what he was able to do. Is he a guy that simply possesses the size and athleticism that was allowing him to show competency to this point before even learning NFL-type scheme? Or did he learn scheme and become a quick learner right away? And so therefore, even from a tactical standpoint, he was doing what a corner needs to do, if that makes sense what I'm asking. Yeah, I think all of those things are true. I mean, I think you have to give him credit, too, because you're right. He missed a bulk of the time in the off-season workout program in the spring when you're trying to get indoctrinated into the NFL and life and scheme and a new coaching staff. So he missed a lot of that time. Then he missed a lot of time uh, with a different injury. In the spring, it was the wrist. And then I think in the, in the early part of training camp, it was a hamstring. Now he's been dealing with a quad for the better part of, uh, you know, almost a month and a half here. Um, so it's, I think it's a credit to him to be able to overcome those things and still show that you know he can play a high, at a high level. You know, bumping up from the Big Twelve uh, to the NFL, and you know he's one of those guys that the Colts prioritized his measurements. You know, to to get your foot in the door with Chris Ballard, he's a big you know measurement guy, and he's a big you know benchmark in terms of height, weight, speed, things like that. They want long. Uh, big athletic corners, you know, guys that are tall but have good footwork. He doesn't have the the best blazing speed, but he's a guy that it, it he's 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 hard to throw over, you know, because he's so big. And we we talked about that at the early part of the season. You know, I go back to that Baltimore game. He's hard to throw over and. You know, some of that uh, speed that he lacks, you know, that elite speed that he doesn't have, he makes that up with just being really kind of hard to see the ball over for quarterbacks and wide receivers. And you know, he's he's very instinctual as well. Again, that Baltimore game, his first game, his first start, punches the ball out. I think of, of Kenyon Drake, who was with the Colts in the uh, in the preseason. Colts got a big takeaway in that game, so he's pretty instinctual. 
um, high football IQ, high character guy, which the Colts obviously always prioritize in the draft. Um, you just want to see him, for his own personal sake, get healthy and string a couple of weeks together towards the end of his rookie season to build some momentum heading into year number two, where I think on paper and projection-wise, the Colts are going to count on him going forward to be a staple uh, you know, in the starting lineup in that secondary. Voice the Colts' Matt Taylor joins us, brought to you by Shelly Materials, the concrete and aggregate experts. Matt, we had Alec Pierce on earlier this week, and he referenced the adversity that he's gone through at times this season, but looks like a bright spot for him and, and a growth stretch for him the last couple of weeks, most notably those three catches for 100 yards and a touchdown, including that big 55-yard reception in overtime. Matt, you have the best seat in the house in terms of seeing plays develop, in terms of being able to get that bird's-eye view vantage point. I know the film that you watch in addition to your prep as well. So an honest question here with Alec Pierce. When you look at him this season and the breakout that's followed the last couple of weeks, has it been, oh, he's getting open more now or he's being more effective now as a receiver? Or has it been, well, he's a product of what schematically Shane Steichen is trying to operate with having Gardner Minshew, who is a good quarterback, but doesn't have the same arm strength they were hoping to utilize with Alec Pierce's tools if Anthony Richardson was out there? Well, I think he, you know, I think his his self-admitted struggles, and I think, you know, Alec is honestly being his, his harshest critic right there. I mean, I, I think he's having a much better season than he probably thinks that he is because of um, just him, you know, wanting more and, the, you know, the competitive spirit that he has. Um, but I, I haven't, I mean, last week aside, I haven't looked at his season this year as, you know, down or a failure or anything like that because, you know, he's had a lot of different quarterbacks and he's had several different offensive coordinators in two years. I mean, last year was, you know, a carousel for everybody, but, you know, he thought going into the season, you know, a guy that was going to complement his skill set was Anthony Richardson by pushing the ball down the field. And they haven't had Jelani Woods all year in their ability to do that as well. And that's kind of taken away, you know, some attention that Alec might have gotten um, deep down the field on some of those go routes and, and deep posts and things like that. But, no, I think I think it's a couple of things with with Pittman's emergence um, as the possession receiver. You know, I know Rick likes to call him, you know, a tight end in a uh, wide receiver's body. You know, those numbers to numbers catches, you know, over the middle of the field and. Not a big yards per catch guy, but high volume in terms of targets and catches and first downs and just big time catches. That's Pittman, um, and so I think Pierce is just sort of you know he's bu- he's buying his time and is waiting for those moments. And they showed up in overtime. The Colts knew in that situation in overtime. They got the ball back with four minutes to go in overtime, knowing they had to get points. And they also knew that they needed a chunk play, and in the worst way. And Minshew saw the coverage, and he knew, based on what he saw scheme-wise in the secondary, that the shot down the field to Pierce was going to be open, and he took it, and he hit it, and it was the play of the game for the Colts. And so, you know, I think – I think Pierce is, is is he's wanting to be he's he's showing a lot more urgency than than his uh his receiving totals uh will tell you. And you know, his his position coach is Reggie Wayne and 
you know, certainly he didn't really get going and established until year three or four because of Marvin Harris. And I think Pierce is kind of in the same mold where he wants more than, than he's able to produce right now and what the Colts are asking of him. But there's going to be more points in time, you know, the rest of this season where Pierce is going to flirt with more 100-yard receiving games and be more of a focus within this offense because the Colts will need him to be based on what teams are doing in the running game uh, to take away, you know, Moss and Taylor. Um, and then, of course, what they do to bracket off Pittman. You know, there's going to be plenty of more games, you know, later this year where Pittman's going to get more of a focus um, from a secondary. He's not going to have eight, nine, ten catches every single game. That's where the door is going to open up for, you know, Ogletree and, and Pierce and so on and so forth. So I, I really haven't bought into the narrative that, that Pierce is having a you know, a, a slump of a sophomore season because that's just not what the Colts are asking of him right now. Um, you know, Gardner Minshew is, is taking what the defense is giving him a lot of the time to move the ball and to be efficient, and obviously it's a high volume to Pittman. But there's, I think, plenty of trust there in, the, in the Alec Pierce, especially in crunch situations, you know, a 36-yard touchdown and a 55-yard bomb in overtime to get the Colts 10 points there. Matt Taylor's our guest, the voice of the Colts. Matt, listen, you take a four-game win streak any way you can get it, right? I mean, if four straight teams decide that they're going to forfeit and you win four straight, hallelujah, we won four straight, right? I I get it. Reality is that it wasn't the upper echelon teams the Colts played, but you got to beat the teams on your schedule. But what area do the Colts most need to tighten up or, or fix and clean heading down the home stretch that they were able to kind of get away with not having running in full rhythm just yet over the last four games. Well, you know, I think it's still, you know, the the rush defense, although, you know, you're playing the worst rushing offense in the NFL this this week in Cincinnati. You know, they only rush about 82 yards a game. Um, that's not to say they can't beat you and they can't be dangerous with, you know, Mixon. He's a really, really hard physical runner. And they got Chase Brown. And, you know, I'll raise my hand. I'll admit that I, I had no idea who this guy was prior to one, uh, watching Monday Night Football. as a fifth-round pick out of Illinois. And, you know, still with the team produces in terms of the depth chart. Cincinnati still has them listed, let's see, what, fourth on their depth chart. Um, and he's, he's really, I think, better than that and more than that in terms of the usage uh, to this point behind Mixon. He ripped off a 31-yarder uh, the other night against the Jacksonville Jaguars. So you, you still have to do a better job of stopping the run, and you are also getting Grover Stewart back this week. That's you know going to help you know a, a tremendous amount. So that that's first and foremost. And then I think, and in, in, you know, as it relates to what you're kind of getting away with right now, um, specifically on Sunday, you, you just got to be better in the red zone. You know, you're not going to win too many football games going one for five in the red zone, and let's see, three for fourteen on third down. Uh, you know, you're let's see, oh, oh for five, or excuse me, one for five on goal to go situations. Uh, down by the goal line. That, that's that's not a winning formula right there. So the defense is racking up a bunch of sacks and a bunch of takeaways, which has kind of masked some things, both on offense and defense. Um, but you know, I think if the Colts take good care of the football, stop the run, and are efficient inside the red zone, there's no reason why they wouldn't be in the game and able to uh, beat the Bengals coming up on Sunday. I know that's a lot of ifs, but if you just play clean football the rest of the way, there's no one left on the schedule where you say, eh, I don't know, it's going to be tough to win that football game. They're all winnable, right? Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, Atlanta, Las Vegas, and Houston. Um, those are not 
you know, that's that's not uh, you know Dallas or Philly or San Francisco in a row. Those are all manageable teams fighting for their life, just like the Colts, to be in a position to make the playoffs. Voice the Colts, Matt Taylor joins us, presented by Shelly Materials, the concrete and aggregate experts. Matey, I'm sure that he's stayed in shape and he, he's gone through his routine on his own, trying to stay physically fit for this stretch run. But a six-game absence is a tough one for anybody to overcome, let alone a position as physically demanding as in the trenches like Grover Stewart is. What is a fair expectation for him in terms of out of the gate, assuming he has a normal snap count this week? Hopefully I'm not uh, proven to be naive, but I, I think he's going to ball out. I, I don't think you're going to miss anything with Grover Stewart. In fact, I mean, if, if anything, he's going to be fresh, he's going to be ready to go, and he's going to be motivated. He's going to be chomping at the bit because this is a contract year for him too. And he needs to – we kind of talked about this last week with the, the rushing numbers allowed without him. Obviously, that's kind of a feather in his cap in a weird kind of selfish way with him being able to say in the offseason, hey, look what happened when you didn't have me in the in the lineup. But in order for that to kind of hold up and to be you know as rock solid of an argument with he and his agent in the offseason, he's got to come back these next five games and ball out and prove it the other way. When I am out there, listen, things, you know, things are, are solidified in the trenches. People don't run on us. We're able to get more tackles for loss. The pass rush on the outside is still stable. So that's what my expectation is for Grover coming up on Sunday. I don't think there's going to be any drop-off at all. I think you're going to see the same Grover Stewart, right, the same guy that started 69 straight games before his suspension. Um, and I'm just expecting, you know, a big-time impact and um, a guy that's going to flirt with playing damn near every snap on defense coming up this weekend. Matt, you're a Reds fan, right? I am, yep. As am I, right? Do you ever, because I do have this happen, it's a very sobering reality when – I'm watching an Ohio State football game, and and I can't stand Ohio State, and then I realize that for half of the year, I actually share fandom with those people at that stadium. <laughs> and like yep. the same as the Bengals are kind of, uh, you know, the Bengals don't hold for me because the Bengals have obviously not been a great franchise for so long, and in particular in my childhood, although obviously of late they've been outstanding. When they went to the Super Bowl, there were a lot of pretty cool videos, to be honest with you, of what it meant to a lot of people. But it's weird for me to watch a Bengals game and realize, like, wait a minute, these are the people I'm high-fiving in the summertime. That's I have the same realization. When I go to Reds games, you've got you know the, the same people there, like the the central, um, or I should say, like the, the the native Ohioans, the native Cincinnatians, if that's the right way to put it. You know, they're rooting for the Reds when I'm there. You know, coming from Indianapolis to watch a ball game, and so I'm high-fiving them. But then you also see people wearing Kentucky T-shirts. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, you see people wearing Kentucky T-shirts, Ohio State T-shirts, um, Cincinnati Bearcat T-shirts. And mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't mind Cincinnati, you know, the, the university of. But I have a hard time high-fiving a Kentucky fan. <laughs> I have a hard time yeah. high-fiving an Ohio State yeah. fan. But, you know, we, we want the Reds' ace, you know, to, to throw seven innings of, of no-hit uh, shutout baseball. I can tell you that. Absolutely. Yeah, I've, I've hyperextended an elbow by retracting a high-five midair when I saw the guy was wearing a Kentucky shirt. Right, it's brutal. Yeah, and you know, my like I told you, my, my pops uh, had his 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 office growing up had season tickets to IU football and basketball, so they'd always throw him a couple of games a year, and and just going down there rooting for IU. I I can't do it, man. I cannot high five a 
guy wearing a blue UK shirt. I, it's I, just not in my DNA, dude. You, you we, believe you me, we <laughs> share that in common. What new? Uh, look, I've been impressed, and I, I realize that you probably have not set in on the film sessions and analyzing the Bengals, but I think that we automatically, Matt, thought that when Joe Burrow went down, that it was like, well, they're done. And, you know, sure, they may not make a Super Bowl run, but they've still got some pretty darn good weapons. What, what if anything, can you tell that maybe they might be tweaking or doing differently to still take advantage of, say, Chase and Higgins, but at the same time have to, to put a governor a little bit on their offense because of the fact Burrow's not there? You know, it's funny you say that or ask me that because I had the same realization about Cincinnati when I was watching them on on Monday Night Football, and I didn't know who Jake Browning was. I'll be completely, um, you know, honest with you. I mean, I kind of remember him in college at Washington because they made the college football playoff in 2016, but. He was kind of out of sight, out of mind for me. And I thought, okay, you know, Burrow's out, and it's going to be tough for, for Cincinnati to make the playoffs for the third straight year and win the division for the third straight year. And then here he comes on Monday Night Football on a big stage, national audience, and the guy is precise. And what I'm about to say is going to shortchange him, and I don't want it to, um, but he just proved to be incredibly competent and in control and relaxed. And what I took from that game is like Cincinnati's offense, I think with him is just as dangerous and the playbook is just as open with Browning as it is with Burrow with all the guys around him, with Chase and Higgins and uh, Mixon in the running game, uh, Tyler Boyd as well. Now that all those pieces are kind of back and healthy and ready to go, Browning looked like there's there's no there's no play for Browning that they wouldn't call for Burrow, if you get what I'm saying. So um, he, to me, looks like a guy that's that's able to, you know, lead them on a on a quest to to make a playoff push. And the reason why I say that is, I mean, you guys have looked at the standings. The Colts are seven and five, Cincinnati six and six. Obviously, if Cincinnati wins this game, both teams have the same record. But Cincinnati will hold the head-to-head tiebreaker over the Colts, so that would, you know, uh, move them up the, the the pecking order in the AFC standings um, as far as the playoffs are concerned. But also, too. The right now there are three seven and five teams in the AFC. You got the Colts, the Steelers, and the Browns. Well, Cincinnati plays all three of those, starting with the Colts this weekend. So they they firmly have uh, a path to the playoffs, and you know you could argue they have their destiny in their own control if they take care of business. And I think Browning gives them more than a legitimate shot based on the way that he played uh, last last Monday night and the. You know the, the the competence that he showed and the, the amount of control and poise that he had. You know, making only his second career start in the NFL, even though he's been in the league since 2019 and he's 27 years old. So it's pretty crazy stuff that it's kind of the battle of the backups between Gardner Minshew and Browning. Both guys uh, played each other in college in the Apple Cup game. Uh, it was it was Browning at Washington, Minshew at Washington State, and here they are in you know five years later trying to get their teams. Uh, as backup quarterbacks into the playoffs. Matt, as the play-by-play voice of the Colts, and I don't want to pigeonhole you here, but do you view yourself as a voice as more of a, a optimist when looking at the team, or do you consider yourself, which I consider you, to be optimistic but fair in terms of how you view the team? Would you say the latter is more towards you? I would say so. Yeah, I would say more like 
optimistically objective, which I know can't exist in the same space. (laughs) That's how I would uh, oxymoron classify myself. Well, the reason I ask that is because how long, in terms of where the standings are, and maybe you already have, do you allow yourself to get to a place where it's like, man, the Colts might win the South. Like that, that's a possibility now, depending on the health of Trevor Lawrence and how all the chips fall. Have you reached that point yet? And if not, how long before you get there, if at all? Well, I, I remember you asking me a similar question earlier in the season. I don't know what, what week it was. It might've been after the Baltimore uh, game and the Baltimore win, but you know, to, to me after, after that game, cause I, I went into the season with really, no expectations one way or the other because I didn't know what to expect because you had Anthony Richardson, you had first-time head coach, a lot of newness on both sides of the ball, and a lot of a lot of stuff that you were just kind of unsure about. So you're just kind of along for the ride. But based on what I saw early from the division and what I saw out of the Colts after that Baltimore win, and I know things have changed a little bit since then, but I, I said then there's no reason why the Colts shouldn't be able to compete for the AFC South championship this year. And I still kind of feel that way, even though it's essentially a two-game lead for Jacksonville over the Colts. They're 8-4, and four, Colts are 7-5, and five, but they swept the Colts, so they kind of have that extra game built in with the tiebreaker. Um, so listen, man, this is crazy. Anything can happen. I mean, I don't have to tell you guys. I mean, two years ago, the Colts were – uh, I know Colts fans were like booking their flights to a wild card game on the road after the Colts uh, on Christmas Day 2021 upset the Cardinals on the road. And then at that point, what was it, like a 98% yeah. chance of yep. making the playoffs? All they had to do was win one of their final two games against the Raiders and then Jacksonville. And Jacksonville was the worst team in the NFL uh, in week 18 or 17, whatever it was that year, the last game of the season. And the Colts lost both of them. So you never say never. You can never really guarantee anything. So even though Jacksonville still has kind of a somewhat of a you know, stranglehold on the Colts with the AFC South, man, this is the NFL. It is not for long. It is week to week. Crazy stuff happens, and you just kind of hope and just have fun with it and and take each week uh, in stride. And, and, uh, you know, obviously the Colts have to take care of their own business, but then it's also fun, too, this time of year to scoreboard watch and see how all these scenarios play out and see the dominoes that may or may not uh, fall your way. Colts and Bengals on Sunday, and then kind of a, not necessarily a totally quick turnaround, but Saturday for the Colts and Steelers back at Lucas Oil Stadium. But we will talk to Matt between now and then. Have a good call and a safe trip to Cincinnati, Matt. I appreciate you. By the way, you just said something. The way you pronounced Bengals, do you say Bengals or Bengals? Let me think. I, without thinking about it, I would say the Cincinnati Bengals. How did I say it right there? The, the Bengals is the band. The the I, I don't necessarily go with the hard e like the Bengals. But I usually I, say bungles, bungles for years when I was growing up. Um, Cincinnati Bengals. I I would say in my mind I think of it like Ben, you know, like Ben Hartsock, Ben, and then goals like like seagulls, Bengals. Yeah. Man, I don't know. Then I say Bengals. I don't know actually. Which one do you go with? I I, I there's like some like hybrid between the e and the a to me in my own head that makes sense. Like Correct. Cincinnati Bengals. I'm not saying Bengals, but I'm not saying Bengals either. Now, it's, I'll tell you the one where we Bengals. say it differently between you and I, Matt. The team in Jacksonville to you is the what? The Jaguars. Okay, because I, I thought I've heard you say Jaguars. 
I have in the past, yeah, and I've gotten absolutely torched for it. Really? And it's it's the it's the Hoosier in me that came out. <laughs> You know what else? The Hoosier in you comes out anytime some guy from Kentucky wants to high five after a Joey Votto double, right? That's exactly right. It's like I'll get you later, man. Yeah. Brain <laughs> right. check on that one. That's right. All right, Matt, appreciate it. All right, be good, fellas. All right, Matt Taylor. Speaking of Cincinnati, we're gonna head down I seventy four for the road trip next. It is Thursday. <clears throat> We'll even stop on our road trip, if you'd like, in Greensburg so the kids in the back can see the world's or the world's most famous tree growing out of the courthouse. Eddie and Jimmy, I'm going to both assume that I'm going to assume that neither of you are aware of the tree growing out of the courthouse. In no, Greensburg, I, I, I knew that fact. Nope. My dad took me there. There you go. You kid. know why? Because it's world famous. There you go. You go there and it's like, oh, look, there's kids from Luxembourg checking it out. <laughs> I would bet, actually, that Lance McAllister, who is one of the Voices on one of the great heritage radio stations in the United States, WLW out of Cincinnati, and is a native himself of Carmel, at some point on the drive back and forth from the holidays or Thanksgiving, has just been overly tempted and pulled off 74 in Greensburg to see, in fact, the world's most famous tree. That is correct, right, Lance? Yes, I am told in the early 1870s, citizens noticed there seemed to be a small sprig growing on the northwest corner of the courthouse tower, and it has grown into the world-famous tower tree. Like, literally, I mean, I don't know if you know this or not, Lance, but it's a talking point in Bangladesh if you tell them you're from Indiana, right? <laughs> I'll remember that the next time I'm in Bangladesh. Yeah, that's right. Hey, um, before actually, you know what? We're, we're here to talk to you, and I appreciate the time, man. It's always good to talk to you about the Colts and the Bengals. But before we do that, just because we do have a fair number of Reds fans that listen to this show, um, you know, in 45 seconds or less, how big a surprise was it to you who have, you know, you got your finger on the Reds as much as anybody, that in fact, even though we knew that there was the possibility that Joey Votto's done as a Red. Yeah, I think it came down to just a combination of he hadn't he hadn't played well, um, his age, that money, and the number of prospects that are ready and on the scene. It just became a matter of musical chairs, and there just wasn't a chair for him. And I understand he wants to play every day, I don't know who's going to be able to give Joey Votto an everyday opportunity. It wasn't going to be here. Um, ultimately, is the door still maybe a crack open to come back as a, a, a part-timer? Maybe, but I just can't see him accepting that. And I think everybody in the end, you know, the perfect script would have been to ride off into the sunset and if not, retire right in some capacity. And it's it doesn't look like it's going to happen, but uh, it should not take away from one hell of a run that will wind him up in uh, Cooperstown eventually. Well, there's another Joe not playing that is a big storyline in Cincinnati, and I think for a lot of people here in Indianapolis, the thought process was that when Joe Burrow went down, so too did the Bengals' season, and yet here they are. You know, it's, it hasn't been a long time, obviously, but they still got some playmakers, and they they still seemingly are going to be able to hang into games. What's Indianapolis going to see with Jake Browning that is perhaps different or even the same? than what they would have anticipated had Joe Burrow been playing? I think it's a great question because they are similar. And look, last week is a blip on the radar of, uh, of Jake Browning. He's, he, I don't think it's fair to think he's going to be that good every week. He's probably going to be somewhere in between his first start two weeks ago in, against Pittsburgh, where he was okay but made a killer red zone interception that kind of um, curtailed a, a chance at victory. And last week, which was all – I mean, last week, he, Monday night, same week, I've lost track of the week, he turned in one of the finest performances in the history of the Bengals franchise. I mean, 
mean, that's how good he was. Um, so he'll wind up somewhere in between that. But to your point of the skill guys, when you can give him one of the best trios of wide receivers in the NFL and a running game that found itself with an offensive line that rediscovered itself, uh, you got a chance to do uh, some damage. It's kind of the wild card of all this because this city, after Joe went down, it was there was depression sitting in. And then the Pittsburgh game came, and they lose 16-10, to 10 and reality really smacked everybody, and it felt in many corners they were done. I mean, I, I, if I had a dollar for everybody who said, now they should tank and just get a better draft pick, and I don't have much air, but I want to pull it out when I hear that. Then all of a sudden they, they, they go to Jacksonville on Monday night as a 10-point dog. They win the game, and hell, they're only a game out of the, out of the, the seventh spot in the playoffs right now. Then they've got to jump some teams, but they're only a game out. Um, with a tough schedule to go, but uh, there, as Jake said after the game on Monday night, we're not dead, and they're not. Lance, since they ended up winning that game, I feel more comfortable asking this question. I probably would have asked it anyway, but it's something that can be laughed off now. Did we ever get explanation, whether it was from Zach Taylor or somebody else involved, as to what the goal was and what the maybe exit strategies, if any, were on probably one of the worst double passes in the history of the sport when Tyler Boyd throws that interception and Josh Allen just walks into the end zone with the pick six? Yeah, um, Zach's immediate comment after the game was, well, those didn't work out. And then Brian Callahan, their offensive coordinator, on Monday night or Tuesday when he joined us on Bengals line, he, he kind of said it. He's talking about all the good, and he says, and we can just gloss over the uh, trick plays. <laughs> I, On one hand, fans wanted create. I'm not saying they did it because of the fans, but fans always want creativity. They want something different. They want something fun. And they only like it when it works. They hate it when it doesn't work. I, I could understand the need for creativity at times, but things were working so well with the passing game and the running game, it's almost like they outthought themselves because it it was working so well. You didn't need to seem desperate and different and and desperate. You could have just gone with what you were doing, but they went the creative route. And and I will, as Tyler Boyd took the pass and turned to throw, it was like everything slowed down and I was screaming, no! And then I was screaming, throw it away! Or just be a wide receiver, run with the ball! And he didn't None of the above, he turned to throw it in the middle of a bunch of bodies in it, and it went to a Jacksonville Jaguar, and I, I still shake my head. Lance, what is Cincinnati's defensive liability? Gardner Minshew is driving down 74. He looks up at the tree, and he goes, here's a little tree that you know was a just a little branch and now it's world famous and if i'm going to be exactly that in cincinnati and play the game of my life and carry us to a win i'm going to exploit what that cincinnati's going to give to me yeah you know it, it's been weird to watch how this defense has unfolded because the expectations were with lou anarumo the defensive coordinator he was in line for a head coaching job in most people's eyes and it just hasn't been the defense they thought and they made a calculated gamble they let jesse bates and von bell their two safeties go in free agency uh, one was a little bit older both were going to make significant money and the bengals in a, in a salary cap league with joe burrow and a bunch of guys uh, due to get big money made a decision to move on from both uh, One would have been okay. Two made it very difficult. So they're relying on a second-year safety, and they're now relying on a rookie safety. And with that comes uh, volatility, unpredictability. And the back end, they have given up so many chunk plays, so many passes down the field where if you're watching on TV, you don't see a defender in your TV screen. You wonder what's going on. 
They've been able to work around it by getting so many red zone stops this year, red zone takeaways. It's extraordinary how many times teams have gotten into the red zone and gotten nothing. Forget about being held to a field goal, got nothing. But you can't rely on that all the time, and it's still a a, a matter of issue with this team that they just can't get figured out. And I think it's that gap between the experience of what they had back there and the inexperience now, and it's it's creating like that domino effect. Lance McAllister is our guest from 700WLW in Cincinnati, part of our Thursday road trip. By the way, the road trip presented by our partners and friends over at AAA Hoosier Motor Club. Lance, when teams go into seasons, you know, oftentimes where a team is late in the year and how they respond to that is fueled a lot by where they thought they were going to be in August. Cincinnati hanging around the wild card area is a much different feel, one would assume, than it is for Indianapolis because of what the expectation was. Is there any chance that, as you mentioned, the fans themselves getting deflated with Burrow's absence, is there any chance that that eventually sets in with the roster as well and they go, you know what, this just this just isn't where we thought we were going to be and, and we're checked out? I don't think so, at least for the moment. I mean, the schedule is very challenging. Colts, Vikings, at the Steelers, at the Chiefs uh, on Sunday night and against Cleveland. And I really think it was a shot of adrenaline Monday night to see what Jake did. And I think collectively this team has to look and say, well, crap, if he can do that, maybe we're not done. Even if they were thinking that they might be done, he gave them new life. And this, there's been such an ebb and flow to this season that day two of training camp, Joe injures the calf and everybody's wondering how long is he going to be out? What's he going to be like when he comes back? He struggles when he came back, then he came back and they won four in a row and then they started struggling again and then he got hurt. So it's been like a, a Kings Island roller coaster ride of emotion. And I think is, is maybe mentally and physically drained as they may have been after the Pittsburgh loss two weeks ago, what happened on Monday night kind of grabbed everybody's attention and, and refocused and, and now I think they, they, the theme was we're not dead. And, you know, Jamar Chase even said after Monday night's game, he says that guy, Jake Browning, he says he's QB1 material. So I think they're all looking around and thinking, at least from the skill guy standpoint, geez, I thought my numbers might drop without Joe. Now they're thinking, well, heck, if Jake Browning can throw for 354 against Jacksonville, we're, we're all in this and we can do some damage. Now, I'm glad you mentioned Kings Island because I got a Kings <laughs> Island question for you here. Um <laughs> Like anybody hearing my voice right now, as a kid, I mean, I probably went to Kings Island maybe once or twice a summer. I haven't been to Kings Island since probably college, Lance, and I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit that because I, I I love it. But I'm curious of this. Is it as big as I thought or is it because I was a kid? Like when I drive past, on when you go around 294 in Chicago and you see like the six flags over Chicago and you're like... That looks like the glorified fairgrounds. Now, is Kings Island massive, or was I just a kid and I just assumed it was because it took the Brady Bunch that long to get the little poster from the little island all the way to, to Mike? That's a great episode, by the way. That's but great. To your main point, yeah. Uh, yeah, it is, but you drive by it in the tower, the, the Eiffel Tower-like structure, plus with, with the, the added rides, the height of those rides, you always drive by it going, who the hell would ride that thing? Because there's loop-de-loops and up and down and sideways. And Yeah, as you drive by it, it is a monstrosity from the parking lots to everything else. It is, uh, it is as you remember it. Now, they don't still have, and I realize that this is how long it's been since I was there, um, 
I think even the last time I was there, they had phased out Hanna-Barbera land. So you don't park like in Huckleberry Hound anymore, right? now? Is it now like SpongeBob parking lot or something like that? Uh, you know what? That's a great question. And as you say that, I found myself humming in my head this morning because I, I, I ran across this on, on TV last night. The banana splits. One banana, two banana, three <laughs> banana, four, five banana. And I've been singing that yeah. song in my head all day. So now that you've reminded me of it, it's clearly an earworm that won't go away. But there is some caricature-driven theme to the parking lot structure. I cannot update you on the current situation. That's your assignment for next time, Lance. After you stop and see the tree swing by there, check it out and report back. All right? That is big time, yes. All right. Lance McAllister, WLW. Appreciate the time, man. Anytime. All right. Lance McAllister, again, our Thursday road trip. Road trip brought to you by AAA Hoosier Motor Club. Purchase a one-year AAA Classic membership and save 50%. Have AAA's legendary roadside service. My man David, the other day, I saw him helping out somebody whose battery died in a rainstorm. That's what you get from AAA. Visit AAA.com slash gift if you want to give that for the holidays. Jimmy's play, and we hand it off to John here in a little bit, getting you set up for the Pacers next. The Jay Cook Plays of the Day. This is me, all right? I'm not a athlete. This is my way. This is how I win. Let's dive right into the plays of the day. We'll start first with the one that no one really cares about. That, of course, is Thursday night football. We are going to get on the train and play the under there. Under 30 is the total in Patriots Steelers. It's the lowest under under over for a team matchup in the NFL in 30 years. So we'll take the under on that side. Four Pacers and Bucks. We'll take Damian Lillard over 27.5 total points for Milwaukee tonight. Pacers Buddy Heald hits over 2.5 threes. Assists plus points over 40.5 tonight for Tyrese Halliburton. Give me the Pacers outright as well. In the nightcap, Lakers over the Pelicans on the money line. Zion goes for over 22.5 total points for the Pelicans. LeBron goes over 28.5 one last one for you. Over half a steal for Aaron Neesmith tonight for the Pacers. If he Eddie? gets a half a steal, that'd be, incre- that'd be impressive. <laughs> it'd be, be record-setting. Here, here's the only thing. If Damian Lillard has 27, it's going to be tough for Indiana. Sure. Unless. Because you got to figure Giannis is going to get you know 28, right? I, sure. You know. Look, if they combine for 57, it's not necessarily a death sentence, meaning they're both near 30 but the Pacers have to play perfect. They need single-digit turnovers, and when we talked with Jeremiah about it earlier today, I, I slightly disagree with him. I think it needs to be a 44-45% three-point shooting night for them if they're going to win. Eddie, do you have any bets? I do. I've got two in this game. I will be taking over one-and-a-half threes for Miles Turner because the Bucks notoriously play that drop coverage in the high pick-and-roll. Sets Miles up perfectly for a couple wide-open threes. Take him over one-and-a-half, and inversely here, I will take Obi Toppin under one-and-a-half. I just don't know how much time Obi Toppin will see on the floor simply because the Pacers need defense and that is not particularly his strong suit. I'll be curious to see how long it takes for them in the game to kind of figure out that whole like we were talking about with Lynn Dunn you know where you come and what point in the game you decide to start cutting off if you will for lack of a better phrase Giannis across the timeline because the way they were able to do that late in the game the first last go round uh, it did limit what Giannis was able to do, but of course by then, you know, he was he, he was so effective. What are you gonna do for the for the the rest right. of the game itself? But you um, limited in late game. I just don't know realistically how effective that's gonna be if Damian Lillard's on because he was not out there. That was the big takeaway. Unfortunately, a negative one, but a negative takeaway from an otherwise great Pacers win was well, that's great, but Giannis just got fifty four and their best their second best player they acquired isn't here. 
Okay, so John is up at AJ's Bar and Grill near Geist. He is going to be there doing the show until 4.30. Pacers then take over. They then play at 5 o'clock. And so we will be talking about all of that. Now, my eyes are, are really bad, Eddie. Does that mean that we have 40 seconds, seconds left? Correct. Or does that mean that we're 40 seconds over? You have 40 seconds left, now 35 seconds. Do you want to count that down? Yeah, I can. We can just sit here for the next 30 seconds and just me do it. What about the fact that we're like closing in on 25 seconds left? Look, I think tonight is going to be fun. Somebody just sent me a thing saying that their brother lives in Las Vegas and got free tickets there because the ticket prices did drop down because so few people, I guess the round trip was really expensive and pricey to get out there. So there you go. But we'll talk about it tomorrow. John is up next. Have a good one, everybody.